trade offers, how to make one, how to take one, how to break one. I'll ask Tim McLeod about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 3rd. It's show number 21 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Patton & Company, Prospect361.com, and the P361 podcast discussing trading, slow-starting players, Japanese and Korean baseball, waivers, prospects, and, of course, his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including an injury for Gene Segura, Edward Cabrera's debut, and recalling Nomar Mazzara, among other news. And Ray Murphy has his report from the American League, including a lot of turnover in Minnesota, an IL stint for Wander Franco, too many outfielders in Detroit, and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Cubs right-handed starting pitcher Caleb Killian. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the five archetypes of trading. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Patton & Company, Prospect361.com, and the P361 podcast. Tim, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. You know, it's been exactly a year since your last appearance. Yeah, and uh, I got to thank you for having me back. Uh, It uh, was a great, uh, great time the last time, and I'm sure we'll have fun today. How many drafts are you playing this year, Tim, and how are your teams doing? Uh, how many drafts? It looks like the magic number is uh, 14, 14. Uh, and hey, it's just like the old Clint, uh, Clint Eastwood Western, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I got a little bit of, every, of everything happening this year. I was uh, reading a draft of Ron Chandler's memoir that he's going to be putting out, I think, maybe later this year or early next, depending on how the production schedule goes. And uh, he talks about the XFL, and uh, you're a charter member of the XFL, so you've been playing it for a number of years. Uh, For listeners who aren't familiar, Tim, uh, give us the 30-second brief on how the XFL works and especially how it's different from the leagues that most people play in. Well, uh, right now, it, the XFL is my favorite league. Uh, it's a great group of guys, but it's a it's a keeper league. You keep 15 every year, and uh, basically you auction your players off in conjunction with First Pitch Forum uh, as a rule. And the auction is done all you got is a piece of paper and a pencil. Uh, it's done right from scratch. And in the spring, we have a supplemental draft, but it's uh, it, it's an auction with a draft and you can basically look at any player that uh, you so choose. There's no restrictions, limitations. It's a great league. It really is. And there's a salary structure that where uh, if you picked up a guy as a pre-major leaguer, then his salary increases are smaller than if you picked him up in an auction after he was already in the big leagues. 
Yeah, they're, uh, if you pick up any player, their salaries increase by $5 a year, unless that player is designated as a minor leaguer. If you pick them up when they have, I believe it's less than uh, 50 at-bats, 20 innings pitched, fairly low number, then the increases are $3 each year. So it definitely encourages you to speculate on younger players. The last time I looked, uh, the consensus top 100 uh basically everybody is rostered in that league so uh you, you gotta know your stuff and again great players great fun yeah i remember i talked to gene mccaffrey a week or two ago here on the show and he was talking about the xfl because he was in it in the early going as well and uh he talked about some of the players that were being drafted that were still in high school yeah it's uh well uh this year uh, I believe there are four players that were drafted uh, that aren't even draft eligible until next year, college players. I've got a Japanese player rostered that probably won't be coming over until 2024. So, hey, you want to draft the, you know, the newspaper boy that can hit your porch, okay? You go ahead and draft him. It's, it's wide open. How much DFS uh, daily gaming do you do? Absolutely none. Uh, I've never got, uh, I I look at DFS as mainly a gambling mechanism and I'm, I'm just not into it. Uh, I never have been into it. I, I, there are so many nuances involved in picking players on a daily basis. It just never really got my attention. Based on that, I'm going to guess you haven't taken any actual gambling on baseball now that the Ontario government has let the sports books in. No, I, uh, I've got uh, probably of the 14 leagues, six of them are money leagues, and that's more than enough for me. I, I like the game for the game itself, and mo- money is not really a motivator to, to me to actually play the game. And I, I don't see that changing moving forward. I Hey, I get the lure of, of playing the daily game. It's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I tried it for a while. And basically, you know, I, I remember I had a really good night in a league one time. I paid five bucks to get in, which for me was pretty rich money. And I, and I had a, a really good night. And I actually finished in the money. I forget how much I made out of the deal, a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks. And... uh when I looked at the, uh, at the final results, there was one guy who had eight out of the top 10 winning lineups. I had right. the ninth and some other guy had the 10th. And I looked further because you could see the whole thing. And he had this one guy, $5 an entry had maybe 300 entries in. And I thought yeah. to myself, I can't compete with this guy. You know, he's got, uh, he's got $1,500. He's got 300 lineups playing and I've got one, you know, it would be miraculous if I could, uh, if I could, uh, beat that kind of interest. And of course, what he was doing was he was stacking, you know, the really good possibilities every which way you, you could. He, I remember that he, what he had that night was an, a lot of Orioles stacks because the Orioles were, you know, they were whatever it was that picture that they were facing or the park or whatever the details were you had to like the Orioles chances of doing well and he had literally every three player combination you could have that had Orioles in it and uh, and one of them happened to hit with a couple of scrubby sort of players and he there he is he's winning you know thousands of dollars and I at that point I thought 
you know what, this is, this is just not for me. And then when it comes to actual gambling, actual sports gambling, uh, when I was going through university in Regina, I worked in the uh, local casino to, to raise some money for tuition and stuff. And one of the things they teach you at the, at the casino is how the casino makes money. And you realize that it's all set up to make sure that the casino makes money because the, basically the, the losers pay the winners and the winners pay the house because they're not getting the money they deserve for having made a correct bet. And I thought to myself, there's a lot of real intelligence has gone into the design of these games and it hasn't been done to benefit me, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> no, I'll pass. De- definitely not. I, yeah. And the other thing is if, if I want to go gambling for an evening, I'll go to a casino and I'll let them comp me a meal, maybe a night, a free night at the hotel. And I'll blow my couple hundred bucks and have fun with it. But yeah, a nice, a nice meal comes in handy. Maybe a nice hotel room, whatever. I just don't get that out of out of the online gambling thing. But when you do gamble in the casinos, what are your games? I usually just play slots. Yeah, a friend of mine was down in Las Vegas once. I think it was his first time. And he's been many times since, but, uh, he was standing, he told the story to me. He was standing there with his silver dollars playing, playing the slot machines. And he's looking around at all the lights and all the beautiful decorations and all of this really, uh, beautiful right. ambience. And he's plugging these silver dollars in the machine and he's saying to himself, how the hell can they afford all this? And he's halfway through his bucket of 50 silver dollars, hasn't won a nickel. And, you know, all of a sudden it dawns on him. And to his credit, he he walked out of there and he's never been back either because I, I understand the lure of gambling. I like playing poker, or I used to. I don't play poker anymore, but used to play, you know, nickel, dime, quarter type things, maybe maybe up to yeah. where a dollar bet was um, something that made everybody go, whoa, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with friends just, and it was with an friends, excuse yeah. to just, to, you know, talk crap social, to each right? other and be, be social. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, as a money game, I, I just, uh, I just don't think there's money in it for anybody except maybe the sharpest of sharp guys with armies of computers and guys telling them what to do. I don't know. Not for me. I don't, I don't stand a chance and I understand that the game is rigged against me and, you know, that's yeah. something that when you gamble, Tim, I think you just have to acknowledge that you're yep. at a, you're at a disadvantage and you accept that fact. And then you go try to beat the disadvantage. And in the long run, you can't. No, uh, in the long run, you can't. It's, it's a, where you live, where I, where I live, it's an excuse to get away occasionally just to get a night out. And I think if you treat gambling in that fashion and you set limits and parameters, yeah, you can have fun with it as long as your expectations are that if you go in there with 200 bucks to gamble, that 200 bucks is gone as soon as you start gambling. And when it's gone, if you're wise, you leave yeah. the uh, facility. Well, exactly. Yeah, you have your, you have your fun. It's, it's much the same as going to, a, going to a movie theater, catching a movie for the night. Yep. Okay, it's going to cost you 100, 150 bucks. Well, you know, hey, if you're doing the same thing in the casino, as long as you have control over what you're doing, it's it's a night out, entertainment. Or a ball game to get to the $200 level. I, my wife and I like to go to a Jays game once in a while. And yeah. Gosh, uh, it's, a, it's a $200 for the pair of us. And that's not, you know, having any of the $20 beers or the $10 hot dogs either. That's just getting in oh, the door. Yeah. No, I was going to say the only place more expensive than a movie theater at the concession stand is a ballpark, right? No, for sure. Yeah, no. When I when I look at the price of a 
a bottle of water at a ball game. I cringe. I really do because the price of one bottle is paying for one case. Well, let's get started about uh, your baseball acumen here. In your most recent podcast, the P three sixty one podcast, it's called. You and your co-host Rich Wilson got into yes. a bit of a digression about trading and especially um, the kind of weird offers that you sometimes get, but how many leagues do you play in that do allow trading? I only play in one draft and hold. So basically I'm looking at, uh, you can't trade in. I'm, I'm looking at 11 of the 14. I can't do trades in. And of the 11, how many of them are dynasty or keeper type formats versus redraft or single year formats? I play in three dynasties and I have partners in all three. Um, I just find the amount of work that requires, you know, that you have to put into a dynasty league with my, you know, with my schedule, with the podcasts and the articles I write in conjunction with my single format leagues, uh, having a partner comes in real handy and that's a lot of fun. So I, I play three dynasties with partners. It's always seemed to me, Tim, that the redraft type leagues, single year leagues, are more pure trade environments because it's clearly always a now for now type deal. Whereas dynasty trades are almost always now for later trades. People call them dump trades, prospects for stars. Uh, What do you think about the difference? When it comes to the dynasty situation, that's exactly what you're doing is at some point in time, you're looking at building for the future or you're looking at competing now and the trades follow suit follow suit whereas in a keeper you're it's entirely for now and what you're attempting to do is address your needs and address the needs of your partner get something done that benefits both and move move forward from there how active are you in the trade markets in your many leagues I'm not overly active. I, I have a tendency to try and milk the waiver wire for all it's worth. And I, I spend a lot of time uh, looking at the free agent pool. But as a rule, once we get to right about now in the schedule, I start looking at my team, start looking at areas where with the right player, I, I can make some moves. And then basically I just take a look at uh areas where I have a surplus that I think I can move and find myself trading partner. So from here on out the next month or so, I'll be fairly active. Once we get into August, unless I'm competing in a league, uh, I have a tendency to do very, very little trading after the beginning of August. Are you usually a trade proposer or a trade responder? Um, a little, a little bit of, a little bit of both. I, uh, I would say I'm probably more of a, a proposer than I am. I, I get a lot of trade offers, but a lot of them it's just click to climb very quickly. I, I find a, a lot of people when it comes to trading don't put in the thought that they really should. You know, hey, if if you're looking at my team and you're and. I'm in mid-pack and stolen bases, and you put an offer out for my best stolen base guy, you're not really putting a whole lot of thought into it. You know, if you want to make a trade to me, make a trade that benefits me as well as you. And that's basically how I make my trades. I I want to find a, a partner that matches up, and I have something I can offer them, and they have something they can offer me. And it's a win-win. And I just find a lot of the offers I get as a rule, 
people just don't take enough time to really analyze what should go into a trade. Well, you and Rich on the P three sixty one podcast were talking about some of the weird or really terrible uh, offers you've had. Some funny anecdotes about. Well, I, yeah. I'm going to call them absurd offers that you've received yeah. over your many years in fantasy baseball. And since we all get those kinds of offers from our league mates, what do you think are the best ways to respond to an offer where I get uh, I I get offered, uh, um, you know, a prospect and. Uh, some kind of bench warmer for Vladimir Guerrero type of things. Well, as as a rule, I've got uh, I've got a fairly good level of patience, and I I tend to respond to most offers. And you know, hey, thanks for the offer, but it really doesn't it really doesn't address my needs. And if something comes up in the future feel free to throw something my way. Now, when I get the same garbage offers from the same player three or four times, I, I just ignore them and move on. I, I try not to burn bridges because at some point in time, you might need to cross them. I think that's good advice. I've, I've heard stories where people say, I got the offer from the guy and it was a real dumb offer, a real thoughtless offer, maybe more than dumb, where it was all the benefit accrued to him and none of it accrued to me. I remember once in a league I was in, this guy made me an offer and what he got from me was something he could use right now to move up in the standings. And what he was giving to me was something that I couldn't use unless I made two or three more trades to improve in the category. And that, that's what he told me in the offer. He said, well, here's how I understand it. I'll get the stolen bases I need and you get started on the home runs you need. And I said, yeah, but the start you're giving me still leaves me 20 home runs short of even getting a point. He says, well, that, well, don't be lazy. He says, get out there and make more trades to get more home runs. And I said, but if I do that, then I'm going to be destroying all my other categories. you know, yeah. I'm, I'm last in home runs and I'm going to live with it. This does this trade makes no sense to me. And he didn't yeah. see it that way. But a lot of fantasy owners that when you get into these kind of swapping stories in social environments, talk about how they, they blast back with an equally absurd offer of their own in a s- sort of satirical or sarcastic yeah. way. And I, I think I agree with you. I don't think you ever want to respond aggressively or sarcastically or meanly because you never know there might be an opportunity sometime down the roads, as long as you're both in the yeah. same league, that you might be able to, to make an offer or, or address an offer that he makes and do something useful. You don't want to burn your yeah. bridge, as you said. Yeah, well, and uh, I, I just think uh, I just think it's important that you keep all the avenues open that you possibly you possibly can when it comes to trading. And uh, again, the the one thing that I really have problems with, I I'm pretty much a straight shooter when it comes to trading. Okay, I'll I'll do my research. I'll I'll see what what fits are out there and who has a surplus that I can use vice and vice versa. But one thing I don't like is I don't like somebody giving me a four paragraph explanation on how this trade benefits me. Okay. Just offer the players up. Okay. I, if, if it benefits me, let me be that decide. I, 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 you know, if you want to put on your plaid jacket and try and sell me something, that's probably not the right approach when it comes to dealing. We just, Put it on the table, and if it works, it works. Uh, and cut to the chase. I'm not into uh, I'm not into detailed uh, uh, negotiations. It's certainly shit or get off the pod. Let's get this thing done, right? I think it's kind of got a very in the same way that you have to know your opponents at a 
poker table. You know, there's, there's guys who always bluff. There's guys who never bluff. And you certainly want to call the guy who always bluffs and never call the guy who doesn't. And I've dealt, I've been at this a long, long time, 30 years now. And in, in my leagues that I've played in, Tim, I've had guys who want a small booklet on the explanation of how the trade works for them. And I've had guys like you who just don't want to hear about it at all. And most guys, I think, fall somewhere in the middle. When, when you email them with a the trade offer or you pick up the phone if you can and call them, they don't mind you saying, I'm offering you player A for player B. I think you can move forward in, in batting average and steals, and I have some room to grow in you know, you know saves or whatever, ERA or whatever the case might be. And leave it at that, because if you get into any more detail than that, I think the risk that you run is that you're basically creating the impression that you think the guy doesn't understand how the game is played, which is fairly insulting to that guy, and you don't want to start any kind of negotiation by insulting him. It would be like trying to sell a guy a car and saying, now... This car has an engine, and the reason it has an engine is because, you know, and the, and the guy's standing there going, yeah, I know how a car works. Why are you doing this? And he gets, just gets irritated with you, and I think, like I said, you don't want to irritate a guy you're trying to make a deal with. I just want to get it done, okay? And the sooner I can get it done with a fair offer. And the other thing I think when you look at trades, some of the best trades that I have made have been lopsided. But in my opponents, to my opponent's advantage, I, I think so many people get hung up on you got to win the trade. But what they're missing out on is the fact that what you're doing is you're trading for statistics. Okay. Uh, a number of years ago, I'm just trying to remember his name, Philadelphia Phillies shortstop, uh, gold glover, won an MVP. I can't remember his name. But anyhow, I traded him and Sean Figgins in his prime for basically a closer. And it was a very, very lopsided deal on paper in his favor, but I had enough stolen bases. All it did was give me seven points in saves. I didn't lose anything. So to get a deal done, I gave up more, but I ended up winning the deal in the long run. I, I think you have to look at those statistics. And sometimes we get hung up on names and potential, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's all about the numbers those players are going to generate. You don't have to win a trade to win a trade. I like to tell the story, Tim, and I've told it on the show here before. I was in a, a AL-only league. This is many, many years ago, and I traded a, another guy in the league. I gave him Mariano Rivera, and I got back nothing. I gave back a guy. I, I got back a guy that I waived, and everybody thought that I had made the stupidest deal in history. But it turned out that that guy used Mariano Rivera's saves, which I didn't need. I had won the category, but he used the saves to go up six or seven points in the category. Didn't affect the overall race. He was an also ran, but he went by about four guys who were chasing me for the overall. <laughs> and, and that, that was the value of it. Well, sure. Like I said, it didn't, what it, what it did do is, uh, through the back door, it generated more points for you by your opposition losing points. So yeah, you, you, you don't have to per se win a deal to win a deal. At least that's my, in my, in my opinion. I was going to ask you about the idea that we have to beat the other guy in the deal. And I, the real downside of it for me, Tim, is that if you're in a league where guys won't do good, smart deals because they're scared of losing the deal and being embarrassed, uh, I think that it's counterproductive for everybody concerned, but 
one way I think your league needs to address it is to take a very dim view of guys who ridicule other guys for making deals, especially right after the deal is made where they say, oh, you made a terrible deal. You're an idiot, but they don't know the deal could work out perfectly fine for that other guy. And if you want to have an active trading league and guys who are not good at trading don't, and maybe that's why they ridicule others, but if you want to have a good active trading league, then everybody should be respectful of everybody else's trades. And if you want to argue about them, do it in the off season when all the dust has settled and you actually know how it turned out and you weren't just guessing based on your perceptions of the player value involved. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of trades where people have viewed them as lopsided, but at the end of the day, they're not as lopsided as people think. You know, we we all have different ways of uh, evaluating talent. And uh, like I said, I, I've seen trades that don't look that great, but they end up at the end of the day working out just fine. So I think that initial reaction should be tempered somewhat. Talking about dump trading, a huge part of the difficulty in that, I think, is calibrating the value of a player that Team A wants for the current year relative to the value of the player or the player package, the prospects, for the guy who's building for the future. And it's especially difficult where prospects are concerned, I think, Tim, because there's a huge range of opinions about most prospects. And we all agree, okay, Adley Rutschman's a great prospect. Okay, we all agree Julio Rodriguez is a great prospect. But a lot of the time, the prospects who are moving in these kind of trades like in the major leagues, are down the list. Sometimes they're not even on any sort of top 100 lists or team top 10 lists. Nonetheless, they may turn out to be good players. We, d- we just don't know. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of upside. There's a lot of downside to most prospects. How do you make the calibration if you're building for the future versus uh, uh, playing for this year? How do you balance the value of a player for now versus players for later well for me to be even entertaining the idea of me i've got got to be in contention for starters and i let's face it we're we're all in contention we all think very highly of our teams but at the same point in time i think you've got to be very realistic when it comes to appraising your your chances for success and it gets very very tricky because obviously we all have different opinions one of the prospects that I am the highest on right now it is a pitcher and it's Yuri Perez of of the it, he's currently at double A in the Marlin system. But again, a lot of people don't like the gamble on pitching. Okay. So again you've got to weigh that into your in your factor and hopefully find somebody that agrees on your assessment of the players you're trying to move. If that agreement is not there, you're you're never going to get value. So uh, again, you, you've got to have a fit, you've got to have a match and you can move forward from there. In a weird way, I think, Tim, this is a place that your trustworthiness within the league uh, comes into question. And if you have a reputation in the league as the guy who's always trying to rip somebody off, who's always trying to get the upper hand, who's always making the low ball offer, I think that guy's at a disadvantage when he says, you know, I'll trade you your Yuri Perez, but I want Vladimir Guerrero back. And because they just think, oh, that guy's a shark. He wouldn't be trading me this guy if he thought he was any good. So I'm just going to decline on the basic principle of the fact that I just don't trust the guy who's making the offer. Well, yeah. And I, I think when you start looking at elite players or potentially elite proven players, hey, 
you got to give up a big haul to get those players. Okay, and it's got to involve an everyday player, maybe two, maybe draft picks, uh, top prospects. Uh, when when you have a player who is a top 30 player, okay, if you're moving that player, once you've moved him, he's gone. You've got to max out your situation. And going all prospects, I think, for an elite-type player, is there's just too much risk involved because, believe it or not, prospects fail all you have to do is go look through the first couple rounds of every major league draft going going back 20 years and you'll see some names in there uh they're shocking you know it there there is no guarantee of success with a prospect so i think if you're moving elite players you've got to get somebody back with some sort of proven experience along with prospects I agree with that analysis with one exception. And the exception is if you're going to lose the guy at the end of a year in a keeper league because he's in his option year of his contract or however your league manages these things, if you've right. got the uh, uh, the Vladimir Guerrero, but you're losing him at the end of this year anyway, I think basically you should just take what you can get, especially if you're an also-ran, having Vladimir Guerrero is not helping you win this year or get into the money this year then he has zero value to you really. And then any package of prospects has more value because it only takes one of them to pan out in most league formats for you to have a real prized asset for several years. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. At the same point in time, I, I think when you start and you make the decision that you're going to move at an elite player, make that knowledge common across the whole of your league to try and take advantage of as many trading partners as you possibly can. I think that also improves the haul you'll get back. I think so too, but I'd caution against just putting a, a message on the league message board. I'm interested in trading Vladimir Guerrero because half the guys don't read the message board and and, and you know, a half of the half that are left don't believe you or think you're going to ask for too much. Uh, I'm I'm a big believer in making personal offers. If, if to, to Go to the trouble, go to the work of saying, looking at each other team and saying, what would be a reasonable deal for these guys? Obviously not the other also-ran teams, but if you've got four four guys within five points of the lead, you should be approaching all four of them and saying, listen, I'm, I'm getting rid of Vladimir Guerrero, and uh, I'd like to talk to you about it because he could really help you win the league this year. Any offer has to start with this player and it would be somebody on his farm or a low priced right. keeper or something like that. Make a specific offer, but make it to everybody who, who is in a position to respond. Yeah, no, I, I can't disagree with you there. One, Just get out to as many people as you possibly can, whether it's through private emails, phone calls, the message board, let people, let people know, make offers and, go from there but i guess the point i was trying to make is just don't isolate it to a team because you might find you can get better by spreading that out and seeing what the other top contenders might be prepared to give you indeed and talking about the value of prospects i think there are two schools of thought here tim and i'm curious i know you're a prospect guy but I, I, my advice to people would be to minimize the number of sources they use for player valuation, especially of prospects, and doubly especially for less heralded prospects or lesser known prospects, because I think if you consult 25 different prospect sites, you're 
building for yourself a situation of paralysis by analysis. If you're just looking at two or three that you really trust, then I think you're in much better shape to reach a reasonable consensus without, you know, confusing yourself so badly that you can't decide whether the guy's worth a uh, Vladimir Guerrero or, or a, you know, Tyler Wade. Yeah. And uh, again, I, I think you'll find most prospect sites, you know, your top 25, 30, whatever, they're all going to be basically the same. You know, the deck might be shuffled a little bit and the order might be a little different, but the top prospects are easy. It's when you get into that mid-tier prospect that that's where having a reliable source comes in very, very handy and a proven source. Reliable and proven, that's the ticket. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Tim McLeod from Prospect361.com and you and Rich also discussed on the podcast some players who have had reasonable-looking rebounds after ghastly starts. Nobody more, both on the rebound side and the ghastly start side, is Marcus Semyon. Since May 15th, uh, he's been hitting 286-ish, uh, 361 on base, about a 775 OPS. And he started the year like at half that, basically, and he has more RBI in the last 16 than he had in the first 31. I guess the question, Tim, is how much does Semyon have to do before you'd be willing to trust that he's finally broken loose of this extended slump he had to start the year? Well, one of, one of the problems was, with Semyon is uh, I don't have him rostered anywhere. I had, I had big concerns about him moving to Texas, uh, and I stayed away. Uh, it's so far, so far it's, it's proven to be the right move, but I, I think, uh, I think you, if you invested in Marcus Simeon, it was in a fairly high draft slot and, uh, which, which, which you've seen is not what you should get over the second half of the year. But again, what are you going to do with them? You're going to keep them. Uh, most people aren't going to trade low on Marcus Simeon, take 50 cents on the dollar. So I, I think what you got's what you got. I, I think we're definitely going to see a better player in the second half. How good? I don't think it's going to be last year good, but somewhere in between last year and ah, I'll, I'll, I'll take 70% of last year and be very happy. But I think you've ridden through the worst of the storm. There are There's better days ahead. You guys also discussed Chris Bryant, who's actually been putting up decent hitting stats, uh, 270 batting average, 342 on base, but a noteworthy absence of pop, uh, 333 slugging, 676 OPS, no home runs. And now we have a major injury issue, a, a longish stint on the IL earlier, went back on the IL last Wednesday with a bad back. How concerned should Bryant's fantasy managers be about his potential for the rest of the season? Well, I think when you look at the no home runs, I think that's a direct reflection of, you know, the back situation. And uh, I think Bryant, uh, uh, people that have Bryant rostered, I think they should be very concerned. Okay, he was off for an extended period with a back with a back issue. He's now back on the aisle with that same back issue. Back issues, that's a problem. They don't, they don't get better overnight. And... Uh, I can I, I can see situations where if things haven't improved a month month or so down the road, teams might actually have to look at selling incredibly low or just cutting them outright. I guess only time will tell with this latest stint, but back injuries I find very, very concern, concerning because it could be a very long haul. 
What's your take on Kyle Hendricks? He started the year looking pretty good, but average at best lately. His strikeout percent is down to 16. Walk rate is up to 8%. That's an 8% strikeout minus walk. And a lot of people think strikeout minus walk, Tim, is about as good as it gets for an easy metric to figure out how a guy is going. He's 54th among 58 qualified starters in Major League Baseball. And his hard hit rate has jumped up to nearly 40%. Uh, how confident are you that Kyle Hendricks can turn things around to get back, if not to past years, at least to the start of this one? I'm not confident at all. Uh, I think the other thing you've got to add into the factor is, you know, he's playing for the Cubs, right? The Cubs are in the process of rebuilding and uh, they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle offensively to give him a whole lot of support. But right now where I'm at on Kyle Hendricks, if I had him rostered, uh, I'd be looking at trying to find a replacement, even going with the hot hand, because I think even if he turns it around to past levels, which I don't believe he's going to do, there's not that much upside there, is there, really? It'd be one of those things where, I guess if it was a trade offer, you'd have to take a look at what they wanted back. And if it was anything, that'd be a situation where I wouldn't offer more than 50 cents on the dollar because anybody who comes to me with a Kyle Hendricks offer, I'm thinking wants to get rid of Kyle Hendricks and might be willing to take 50 cents or 60 cents on the dollar. If that's what I had to offer, I might consider it, but I'd sure want to dive into those metrics because the 8% strikeout minus walk, man, that is really scary to me, especially for a guy like him who's not a big strikeout guy in the first place. He can't walk guys at that rate. No, he he can't. And uh, my concern would be, why would I make much of an offer when in all probability I'm going to get him as a free agent within a couple of weeks anyways, if I want to take a chance on him? You know, sometimes you get in those leagues like uh, Tout Wars is one example where you've got a real limited reserve list and you might be yep. running into a crunch where you have a couple of injured guys coming back and your reserve's already full. You only have those four reserve slots. And you might say, I'll offer this guy these two reserves to make room for the other guys that need to put on reserve for Kyle Hendricks and take my chances that way. But otherwise, yeah, I'd be pretty leery about making any kind of substantive offer. Carlos Correa has had his share of injuries during his career, again this year with Minnesota. Uh, 11 games on the IL, had a hand injury, and just the other day a COVID diagnosis. I think one good thing here, Tim, is that all these injuries uh, this year seem to be kind of one-offs. You know, it's not a chronic type of thing. But StatCast says Carlos Correa has really been hitting the ball hard what do you make of Correa as a fantasy asset for the rest of this year? Uh, I have I have some problems with Carlos Correa, and they and they started when he quit running. Okay, when when I look at my middle infield, uh, I I like to have some speed with the ball, and I I agree that he's been hitting the ball hard, but at at the end of the day, I like a little bit more speed. I I would actually rather have Jeremy Pena in Houston, who's replaced him than Korea himself, simply because there's there's a little bit of pop, a little bit of speed, and a little bit more of a balanced approach than Carlos Correa brings to the table. And finally, Tim, well, what about our fellow Canadian Joey Votto in Cincinnati? A comeback, actually not a Canadian anymore. I heard he's uh, applied for and received American citizenship. I don't know if that means he has to forego his Canadian or keep both. Nowadays, I think you can do both. But he had a comeback year last year 
with 36 homers in 533 plate appearances. If you prorate this year, he's on his way to eight home runs in 533 plate appearances. His on-base percentage is down 34 points below his previous worst year. 311 slugging, uh, that was as bad as the one I mentioned for Brian earlier. It's 100 points below his previous worst. Is this a bottom for Joey Votto? Would you be willing to take a chance on Joey Votto rebounding this year? Um, it would it would depend on the league, the format, and uh, as far as my expectations for the balance of this year, no, I don't think he's going to be as bad as what we've seen, but I don't think he's going to be as good as what we saw last year. So pick a point somewhere in between. If you can pick him up for 50 cents on the dollar, you know, and, and the cost, it's a minimal cost, yeah, I, I, I would take a bet that he's going to be better in the second half. But again, you, you got to look at you got to look at the team concept a little bit too. The Reds really aren't going anywhere, and their offense is is anemic. A fair description? I think so. <laughs> yeah, the supporting cast isn't there, so you know, temper your expectations accordingly. Good home run park, though. That, that's yeah. what makes me wonder about Votto's real decline in his home run rate. Yeah, well, why don't the Jays just get over get over it? Okay, make the Reds an offer. Okay, and find some way so that uh, Joey V can spend the remaining years of his career as a Toronto Blue Jay. I wonder if the uh, Brain Trust in Toronto, their pretty sharply run team, are looking at Joey Votto and they're thinking the same thing we are. You know, we've got a fairly good thing going here and some offensive woes notwithstanding. I wonder if they think Joey Votto is the solution to whatever's ailing them, although they could use a left-handed bat. I think he'd help out Toronto. The left-handed bat thing especially, but uh, again, there's a lot of money on the table when you look at that contract, and I don't know if the Reds are prepared to eat any of that money. I I sort of rather doubt that they are. I do too, because they tend to be fairly cheap about most of their operations, but if it was a way to get rid of some of the money, knowing that the uh, alternative is to have all the money still on their books, they they might be persuaded. I don't know. Uh, It'll be an interesting thing to watch with Joey Votto. Uh, Tim, interesting so far as I expected it would be. Let's take a break and then we'll finish our discussion later in part two. Looking forward to it. Tim McLeod writes for Patton & Company, prospect361.com, and appears on the P361 podcast. He'll be back later in the show, but coming up we have our Market Watch Player News Reports, Nick with the National League News, Ray with the American League, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Matt Cedarholm dives deep into to Chicago White Sox right-hander Dylan Cease. In the lineup outlook, analyst Greg Jewett looks at three hitters who could be climbing up their batting orders, including Cubs second baseman Christopher Morell. And in the bullpen buyer's guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at the free agent relievers available in one NFBC league. And those are just a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matthew Cedarholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. 
As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. We start with some bad news for the Phillies, like they need more bad news. Uh, shortstop John Segura, terrific fantasy player, terrific real player, suffered a broken right index finger. He got hit by a pitch on Tuesday. He goes to the IL, and this is really something that cuts into Philadelphia's effectiveness. And boy, what bad news for Segura's fantasy managers. Yes, really. And I've seen estimates that he could be out 10 to 12 weeks. We have cut his projected bats in half, and that might not be enough. Uh, we're guessing here, but it seems likely that Bryson Stott and Johan Camargo will be the main beneficiaries in terms of playtime. And we'll just have to monitor things over the, the next couple of weeks and see how Philadelphia fills out its lineup because we're really uncertain, but this is a huge blow both to fantasy managers and to Philadelphia. You know, we've talked about Bryce Harper's situation a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Of course, he's got some elbow problems that are preventing him from playing the field. He's still in the batting lineup, but he's been complaining more and more about this problem that he's having with his elbow. And uh, it seems possible to me anyway that if they get too many more injuries, they may just throw in the towel and tell Bryce Harper to take the rest of the year off and get right for 2023. Yeah, that's. I guess that is indeed possible. I mean... uh... Uh, they, you know, they're they're really struggling right now with the injuries and uh, certainly need him in the lineup. And if if this is going to be a lingering kind of thing that even DHing will will aggravate, uh, they certainly might indeed do that. I noticed uh, Nick Maton was also considered a, a possibility at shortstop in Philadelphia. Not a lot of fantasy value there, unfortunately, either. Uh, moving along, staying in the National League East, the Miami Marlins called up uh, right-hander Edward Cabrera for a start on Wednesday in Colorado. Welcome to the Major Leagues, kid. Here's the thinnest air in the business. Uh, Phil Hertz covering the story for playing time today. How did Edward Cabrera do? Well, he was wild, but overall pretty effective. Four walks in six innings, just 59 strikes in 94 pitches. But that was actually a positive result for the 24-year-old prospect. He's taking Cody Poteet's spot in the rotation. The Marlins don't expect Poteet to be out for long, so it's not clear whether Cabrera will stick very long with the Marlins. Uh, fantasy managers may want to wait and see if he sticks around on the Marlins roster, but he's such a highly regarded prospect. Miami's number five and number 53 overall in baseball. He'll likely be gone long after this uh, weekend's fab runs. People are going to grab him up and, and then, uh, then see what happens to him. I would take more of a wait and see attitude, I think. A lot of it depends on your league stashing rules and how long you can hold on to a guy. If you can hold on to a guy, what's the opportunity cost of putting an Edward Cabrera on your reserve? If, for example, you're in an NFBC format league, you've only got those seven reserve spots and they're pretty valuable to deal with uh, injuries during the season and what have you. And 
a lot of guys I know, including me, when I'm playing in that format, I always have one slot out of the seven that I'm kind of putting a guy on my wish list for later on in the season. I think Edward Cabrera might be the kind of guy I'd use that spot for, but if it was any more demanding in terms of the opportunity cost of having to cut somebody else to make room for Edward Cabrera, I don't know, Nick, I think I might be a little bit reluctant because the big leagues are very unforgiving of guys who can't get the ball over the plate. And even in the minor leagues, Edward Cabrera has not shown a great ability to get the ball over the plate. It, it's really what has slowed his progress to the big leagues. Yeah, it, it has. And, you know, four walks and six innings pitch, so that, that's not good. 59 strikes and 94 pitches, that's not good. Uh, and so, and, and, and batters will quickly learn to wait on him. I mean, if, if he's only throwing strikes at that kind of a rate, you don't have to swing a lot. That's exactly what I was thinking. And, uh, you know, when you look at his minor league record, it's it's pretty much the same. Over his last few stops, uh, excluding the big leagues, 15% walk rate, 20% walk rate. That was at A ball in 2022 this year. He, he They promoted him to AAA, and he got it down to 12% walk rate and, uh, of course, 16% in the one game this year so far. Even a 12% walk rate in the minor leagues, that doesn't augur super well for how a guy's going to do at the big league level because the walk rates tend to go up and the strikeout rates tend to go down for most pitchers. And I know Edward Cabrera's got a a world of talent, but he's going to have to do something about that because, you know, he's got those uh, high strikeouts and his strikeout to walk rate, what we call his command ratio, is, you know, in the mid twos, 2.3, 2.5, something like that. But it has been lower. And, uh, boy, nowadays it used to be the 2.5 was considered a pretty good rate. And nowadays it's not good enough. It has to be three, three and a half, four even. Yeah, very definitely. So I, you know, I, I, he's not a guy that I would be jumping on, I think right away. Again, it depends on what it costs you. Uh, Cincinnati right-hander Graham Ashcraft, a guy I literally had never heard of, and I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan. He was excellent again in a win over Washington on Thursday. Should we be starting to believe in this guy, Graham Ashcraft? Well, Graham Ashcraft earned the victory, making him 2-0 since his call-up. He struck out five and seven innings, allowed just a solo home run by Josh Bell, walked only one. And more importantly, he was a ground ball machine, 14 ground outs, as he dominated the Nationals lineup. Uh, since call, being called up in May, the Reds have three wins in his three starts, and he was the, the one of the decisions in his most recent two starts. Opposing lineups over his first three starts uh, uh, have just a 1.53 ERA and a whip under one. So uh, after striking out more than a batter in any across three minor league seasons, the rookie has fanned only nine batters in his first 17 and two-thirds major league innings. Next start will likely be in the middle of next week against Arizona, but certainly someone to keep your eye on. I mean, uh, he's done very well in two consecutive starts. Arizona is not a, a dominant lineup by any means. Uh, I find find some interest perhaps in, in uh, Ashcroft. Yeah, Washington's not exactly a murderer's row either these days, except for Juan Soto, and I guess you can pitch around him. So uh, I'm interested in this Graham Ashcraft. What jumps out at me, though, Nick, as I mentioned, is this is a very low strikeout rate. Uh, He's got, you said, nine fans in uh, 17 and two-thirds innings. That's barely one every other inning, so 4.5 strikeouts per nine. And eventually that's not going to work. Uh, You know, even if he's virtually eliminated the walks... And he's got so many ground balls that he's not probably likely to suffer too many home runs, although the park is going to be an issue in that regard. 
I'm not sure how I feel about this. Of course, I'm rooting for him. As I said, I'm a fan of the team and they could use all the help they could get, but uh, I'm not really that excited by this profile. No, it's certainly not an exciting profile. It's uh, someone you don't want to, if you do want him to spend some money on him, not very much uh, because, uh, you know, this is the kind of, he's not pitching on a great team. Uh, as you said, the, uh, the the strikeouts are low. Uh, he's not going to get him out of a situation by by being able to strike out three batters in a row. Uh, so uh, you know the ground outs are great, and and that's that's a real real positive. But can he continue doing that at the major league level? It's interesting that in the minor leagues, his strikeout rate was a relatively more normal, about nine per nine, a strikeout per inning in the minors. But as we said earlier, talking about Edward Cabrera, when they get to the big leagues, strikeouts go down and walks go up. And I think that's the concern. Although I take your point about not being able to strike out three guys in a row or a couple of guys in a row to get out of a tough spot, but boy, those ground balls can save your bacon with the double plays. They sure can. Uh, If he can get ground balls at that rate, uh, that, that can, that can save you a lot. So uh, an interesting, an interesting guy to, to keep an eye on, and if uh, I would not make a high fat bid on him, but you know he might be worth a buck. In Chicago, Drew Smiley was sent to the IL with an oblique strain, and it looks like he's not going to be back anytime soon, according to Drew Smiley. He landed on the 15-day IL with a right oblique strain on Wednesday. He told Chicago media Thursday he doesn't have a timetable for him to turn, but could miss about a month. Um, and said his recovery timetable would depend on how he feels as he builds up his workload. He'll rest and receive treatment during the first few days on the IL before he resumes throwing. Okay, so Wade Smiley also went on the IL a few days earlier. Smiley and Miley. So what are the Cubs going to be doing in the rotation with uh, these two veterans out? I'm just going to say linchpins, but it's a little overstating it to say that. But they're veteran arms, and they know what they're doing out there on the mound. They're both out of the picture for the time being. So what does the Cubs rotation look like? Well, Marcus Stroman has been holding his own. Keegan Thompson has been a revelation, going 6-0 and with a 1.99 ERA, although his ERA estimators are over three and a whip barely over one. Uh, Thompson pitched mostly out of the bullpen in 2021, 32 appearances, uh, 3.38 ERA, but a lot of walks, which he seems to have tamed so far this year. And he's also really limiting hard contact. So those two have been been good. Uh, after that, with Miley and Smiley out, it's looking like a train wreck. Uh, Justin Steele is 1-5 with a 5.40 ERA and a 1.58 whip. Uh, Kyle Hendricks has ERA and XERA over 5. Uh, Matt Schwarmer has had one game so far after six seasons in the minors with a combined uh, 4.40 ERA and a 1.26 whip and a losing record, although with decent command. So uh, I, I'm not sure. There's a, there are a lot of places they can go at this point. Uh, two decent starters and the rest of it, as you said, as we said, looks like a train wreck. And even for a guy 6-0, and Keegan Thompson, I'm not 100% sure about that either. He's long gone in leagues where he's been available, of course. A lot of guys look at that 6-0 and record and they think, hey, I could use pitcher wins. And uh, I'm sure he's not rostered, but it'll be interesting to watch what happens. And especially the progress of Smiley and Miley as they make their way back. But uh, this is starting to look an awful lot like a lost season for the Cubs in general. So it may even be that the the team has very little interest in rushing these guys back to a lineup in a season that's pretty much gone by the boards. Uh, on Monday of this week, our Jock Thompson predicted that San Diego was going to recall Nomar Mazzara. 
I barely recall Nomar Mazara myself. And sure enough, the Padres did recall Mazara back to the big leagues on Thursday to fill in for the ailing Will Myers. So what's going on with this San Diego outfielder? Myers received a gel injection in his inflamed left knee on Wednesday. Was hoping to return to the lineup on Thursday, but it wasn't to be. Uh, Padres rested him again and called up Mazara from AAA to uh, make a start in right field. I joked about recalling Mazzara, but I certainly do. In fact, he was on several of my fantasy rosters over the years, as I'm sure he was on many of our listeners' fantasy rosters. He always seemed to be a guy who was somehow disappointing. You know, he, he actually got fairly decent stats, but his breakout was always just around the corner and never quite arrived. Yeah, that's right. I'll cue I had him on several rosters and, and kept waiting for him to break out, and it never really happened. Was a consensus top 20 prospect with the Rangers, played four seasons, with them and was kind of solid but unspectacular. Batting average in the 250s or 260s all four seasons. Home runs went 20, 20, 20, 19. RBI between 59 and 69 all four years. Just just kind of like that. Uh, then he played part-time for the White Sox in Detroit for a season each. Uh, posted a 5.97 OPS over 181 at-bats for the Tigers before they cut him. And this year signed a minor league deal with San Diego. He has been tearing up AAA this year, a 1095 OPS to 152 plate appearances in El Paso, but that's one of the friendliest hitting environments in the offensive-friendly uh, Pacific Coast League. Takes the roster spot, Robinson Cano, who was just 3-for-33 with a walk and 10 strikeouts during his days in San Diego. Uh, he certainly, certainly should do better than that. If he produces, he can get plenty of playing time in the outfield in a DH on a club that barely needs an offensive spark. Uh, but right now, this looks like a really, really big if. A big if indeed, Nick. Uh, and let's move on to St. Louis. Uh, the Cardinals' closer, Giovanni Gallegos, is actually pitching really well this year, but he's not getting as many save opportunities as we might expect from a really solid pitcher on a really good team. Uh, Dan Marcus covered the Cardinals in playing time tomorrow, coverage of the National League Central. What is going on with the St. Louis bullpen, and how can we play it? Gallegos hasn't done anything to lose the closer job in St. Louis with his early season performance. 3.52 XCRA, uh, 23% strikeout minus walk rate. Uh, but that hasn't stopped the new manager, uh, Oliver Marmol, from mixing and matching bullpen usage and save opportunities. Right-handed pitcher Ryan Helsley has picked up three of the team's last seven saves and both of the last two. Much of that has to do with the team seemingly protecting Gallegos from overwork which could continue to cost him opportunity as the season wears on. He's pitched back-to-back days only twice this season. After going back-to-back 17 times in 2021, managing a 3.06 ERA and a 13.8 strikeout per nine dom rate. While he did improve to a 1.63 ERA with one day of rest, using that data to shy away from using Gallegos in back-to-back situations seems a little misguided. At the same time, all indications are that his usage by the team is intentional and they may continue not using him in, in back-to-back situations. Which would open the door for Helsley. Uh, and Helsley has been called by a lot of analysts out there, the best reliever in the majors this season. He's been having a terrific year. Uh, what can we say about Ryan Helsley? Uh, he has he's shown massive skills, a 208 BPV, base performance value. He's his level what we call vintage Eck because Dennis Eckersley was the only reliever to routinely top 200. Uh, his strikeout minus walk percentage is 36%. 30 is considered elite. 
and he's sporting uh, a matching 0.48 ERA and whip. He should continue to see save chances if he doesn't take the role outright at some point this summer because he has absolutely been dominant. I think I'm going to take a little issue with Dan Marcus on the on the idea that not using Gallegos back-to-back seems misguided. Uh, the 306 ERA in, in uh, 17 tries at back-to-back appearances last year, but 163 with a day of rest in between, that's cutting his ERA in half. And it seems like that's well worth the opportunity, especially if you can take the ball away from Gallegos and hand it to a guy with a 36% strike on minus walk. And this is a plus, it seems, for St. Louis. And Oliver Marmol, after years of managers in St. Louis who played it by the book, we have to have a closer, all of these kind of things. All of a sudden, this new manager seems like a breath of fresh air, and he, he's handling his bullpen the way people like us say he should be handling his bullpen. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I mean, uh, this is, you know, you're, you're right. Uh, a, a drop in ERA of that much with a day of rest uh, certainly makes Gallegos a more valuable pitcher. And when you've got a Ryan Helsley and don't have to rely on, on Gallegos every day, every closer opportunity, yeah, I, I agree with you. And finally, Nick, uh, in the Los Angeles bullpen, Blake Trinan is now likely out until after the All-Star break with shoulder issues. A lot of fantasy managers had Blake Trinan as a speculative pick in the start of the season. He hasn't pitched, and now he's likely not going to pitch for quite a while. We know that Craig Kimbrell is pretty well established in the bullpen for the short term, and the bullpen's been terrific. But what are the Dodgers' bullpen options as we look deeper into the future? The bullpen has been terrific, even in Trinan's absence, posting Major League Baseball's third lowest ERA. Trinan will be a Dodger through 2023, but the shoulder woes obviously raise questions as to his future effectiveness. And that combined with the 2023 projected free agency departures are mid-30-somethings Craig Kimbrell and Daniel Hudson, seemingly open the door to future late-inning opportunities for the arms that remain. Among those, 23-year-old Bruce Star Guerrero's improvement, 2.20 ERA, 11.9 swinging strike rate, five holds through 20 innings pitched, is upping his meaningful innings. And his 100-mile-an-hour sinker has always generated huge ground ball rate, but a 4.05 XERA and a poor 8% strikeout minus walks reminds that Guadarol is still a work in progress and unlikely to see regular ninth-inning work until he can up his strikeouts and reduce the free passes. The pin's most pleasant small sample has come from primary lefty Alex Vessia, now also shooting up to high leverage pecking order with six holes in May, just in the month of May. 2.57 ERA, 3.18 XERA, 25% strikeout minus walk rate through 14 innings pitch had been fueled by an excellent 27% strikeout minus walk rate and Vessia's ability to check right batters to date. Obviously, L.A.'s organizational and financial depth make it impossible to project what the pin might look like in a couple of months and especially next year. But these are two names under club control that are currently rosterable in deep save plus holds leagues and whose progress should be tracked with an eye toward 2023. Interesting report. I do like this Alex Vezia guy. Uh, He's got exactly the kind of skills. But, of course, Nick, we have to keep in mind that left-handers are often discounted by organizations and by field managers who look at them and say, I don't want a left-hander pitching to a lot of top right-handed pitchers in the ninth inning with the game on the line. So there's that uh, tiny bit of, uh, of 
discrimination, I guess we can call it, against left-handers in those leverage roles, despite the effectiveness of, of many left-handed closers who've been quite successful over the years. Yes, you know, it's, it's, it is something to keep in mind. So far, that doesn't seem to be a problem with Vesia. Uh, the Dodgers will put him in, and, and I, I picked him up uh, a week ago. I've been watching. They'll put him in and let him pitch his inning. Uh, instead of pulling him out as soon as the right-handed batter comes to the plate. So at this point, they're letting him pitch to right-handers, and if that continues, it certainly makes him a lot more more, more valuable. Well, I've never been afraid of left-handed closers myself, but I have to say that I am always leery of the possibility that somebody out there is going to say, I just don't want to have a left-handed closer. And it's even more peculiar, Nick, because... We can look at their splits, their platoon splits, and oftentimes they have, they're equally effective against left-handers and right-handers, and nobody ever holds it against right-handers that they have to pitch to left-handed hitters, especially as closers go. So it, it seems like one of those, almost like a superstition at the major league level, and I think it's finding its way out of the, out of the game as the managers get a little more cognizant of the fact that uh, in short runs, a left-handed closer can be just as effective as a right-hander, and indeed they have. Yes, definitely. And you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking exactly the same thing. We we don't hold it against right-handed closers and 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 take them out as soon as a left-hander appears at the plate. So uh, why should we do that against left-handed pitchers? So I, I would, I'm on on the same train with you on that one. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League this week, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, it's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here as always, my friend. Let's start in Minnesota, where the Twins put shortstop Royce Lewis on the IL with a leg bruise on Monday, then put the shortstop Carlos Correa on the COVID list on Tuesday. They called up an infielder named Jermaine Palacios and recalled Juan Miranda from AAA. Rick Green covering all of this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's the latest on the Twins? Uh, Not a lot of clarity yet on whether... It'll be Correa or Lewis who returns first or when. Uh, you would think with the l- more limited uh, time frames on the COVID IL, we might see Correa first, but I, I haven't seen good information about uh, level of symptoms he has, et cetera. So that's all up in the air. I, definitely a bit of a turn on the roller coaster for Royce Lewis owners who, of course, enjoyed his performance for like two weeks and then had you know, were outraged when he got sent down thrilled again when he got called up and that lasted all of about 15 minutes until he sustained this leg bruise. So, uh, you know, the whiplash there is real, but for, but for now it's gotta be, like you said, uh, Palacios and Miranda are back up. Uh, we've seen Jorge Polanco and Nick Gordon at shortstop this week. Palacios seems like he's basically there for depth. Um, so that's, you know, they had a double header this week, so they needed the extra bodies, but, uh, it's a, uh, it's a mishmash until uh, we see either Lewis or Correa again. I checked the uh, rosters for the week, and Palacios actually has been in there all four times since he arrived in Detroit, playing shortstop and batting right at the end of the order, eighth or ninth. And uh, and uh, Gordon has been playing, but mostly in the outfield. And Juan Miranda, not so much at all. Yeah, Miranda. You know, Miranda can't play shortstop, which is you know he's probably there as an extra bat or whatever. And Gordon, I think, has been in center field, you know, because Buxton's been in, been out a little bit, you know, with a combination of him being dinged up and you know slumping now. 
uh, which I guess defaulted Palacios to short. It does seem like they don't really want to move Polanco back over. So, uh, you know, he's kind of staying put. But if uh, if Buxton's back in the lineup this weekend, I'll be curious to see if it's actually Gordon at shortstop. Yeah, Polanco, I think, went to shortstop because they were just waiting for Palacios to arrive. They were on the road in Detroit. Had they been at home, of course, it's just across town. I think the uh, AAA team is in St. Paul, so they would have had a pretty easy time of it. I noticed that, uh, as I said, Gordon played in all five games. So where do you think this leaves Royce Lewis when all the dust settles? You know, it's a great question. You know, they, they had called him up before Correa got COVID, if I got the timeline right on that. And I saw an interview with uh, the GM a couple of days before the call-up saying that, you know, they were actively moving Lewis around in the minors, getting him some outfield reps, et cetera. And I know you and I talked, that might have been two episodes ago now, when Lewis got sent down and you said that was the key indicator you were looking for as to Lewis's plans, if they were going to, you know, try to turn him into a utility guy for the short term and find ways to get him in the lineup in Minnesota. And I, you know, before he got hurt, I think that question was answered. So I assume when Lewis is ready, he comes back, probably Miranda goes back down and you'll start seeing Lewis all over the diamond for the twins. Of course, he was playing in the outfield when he got hurt. He crashed into a wall, uh, basically unfamiliar with the territory, I suspect. And that's a danger. People don't think much of it. I, they professional baseball player. How could he run into a wall? But the fact is your instinct is to chase the ball. And when you hit the warning track, if you're an experienced outfielder, you know, Hey, time to slow down. Maybe I should let it hit off the wall instead of running into the wall. And Royce Lewis, to his credit, kept running for the ball, but to his discredit, he ran into it and didn't make the play and hurt himself. Uh, It's an interesting situation. I'm very curious what they do with Royce Lewis, Ray, because, because, uh, I suspect that he's the future of the team. They just have to realize it and figure out a way to get him onto the roster, into the games, and let him figure things out. I don't know how fast that's likely to happen because they're pretty likely ticketed for the playoffs, and I don't know how confident they're going to be that Royce Lewis can handle the playoff pressure, or that's what they'll say. That's what they'll say, and you know, they also, you know, it's an interesting point you make, they also like to say that you know, the guy needs to work on his defense before he's ready for the majors, right? But in this case, you're out, you're, you're right. It's not as much about defensive efficiency as, you know, the bare minimum is self-preservation, right? And it, I think there was a question as you're pointing out as to whether Lewis had even achieved that standard of defensive play in the outfield before they, before they called him back up. You know, but the sort of hidden story here is, you know, I kind of think what happened is, as I mentioned sort of at the top of the, discussion here you know as Buxton has cooled off after the red hot April this lineup really needs the spark that Lewis was giving them for the two weeks he was up and I think they kind of just decided that they kind of couldn't live without that and I mean obviously it remains to be seen if Lewis could carry that over but this you know as you said it's a good team ticketed for the postseason but a very average offense that you know can't afford the luxury of you know, keeping Royce Lewis parked in the garage while some of these other guys are out there with, you know, OPSs that start with a six. Or in the case of Miranda, an OPS that starts with a four, it was a 436. And I think that when you said earlier, Miranda will be the first guy ticketed out, unless he gets into some games and really starts mashing, I think he's just, like you said, it's bench depth 
at best and probably isn't worth keeping on a roster, at least for now. And I think Royce Lewis, getting back to him, if he comes back from this injury, this bone bruise, relatively quickly, gets into some games and starts hitting again, I think he can just force his way onto the roster for the rest of the season, playing maybe three or four different positions over the time. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He could play three or four other positions, and uh, you know he'll fake the corner outfields. Maybe he'll play some third base. I haven't seen this officially talked about, but it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if you see a little bit of Correa over at third base too, and you know give give Lewis some time at shortstop. I don't know which one of them is the better fit there, but you know point being there are there are ways of getting Royce Lewis into the lineup, especially if he's raking the way he was a couple of weeks ago. Gio Urshela not raking, um, maybe not raking. maybe forcing the Twins' hand a little bit to get both. Correa and uh, and Royce Lewis into the lineup, as you say. Over to Seattle Mariners, another Lewis, uh, Kyle Lewis, goes to the seven-day concussion IL, and uh, they recalled utility player Abraham Toro, a good Canadian boy from Montreal, was activated from the 10-day injured list on Wednesday. Rod Trusdell covers these teams for the uh, playing time today. What is Toro's role likely to be? Toro probably you know, steps into the... Uh, y- Back into the infield mix here. That's been a little bit of a revolving door, uh, partially because Toro himself has struggled out of the gate before he went on the IL this year. Uh, a, a super low 16% hit rate has not helped there, but he hasn't been making a ton of solid contact either. Uh, his power and speed skills are, you know, I, I think top out at average is probably a, a favorable way of putting it, right? Um, but, you know, there were, there were some flashes. I think it was around this time last year when he started, uh, he got on a little bit of a streak and it was a popular ad in leagues. But uh, we haven't seen him sustain sort of being a plus offensive uh, contributor. His second base, third base eligibility in most leagues is nice. And there's probably a decent amount of playing time to be had here as he he bounces around the infield. But, uh, you, you know, average ceiling kind of skill profile is kind of how I'd characterize it. A team that I like to watch because it reminds me of trying to run my own fantasy team is Tampa, who use versatile multi-position players to cover up when guys are lost to the IL, and they're going to put that to the test because they lost their best player, I would argue, shortstop Wander Franco, with a strained right quad. Uh, Chris Olson covers Tampa for playing time today. I think there's going to be multiple beneficiaries here, but I don't know exactly how that'll shake out. What do you think? I think that's right. And, you know, Franco was, as you say, kind of the anchor in a positive sense in that lineup. You know, they kind of move everybody around the other eight positions. But, you know, Franco was entrenched at shortstop. And, you know, they were riding out of slump with him. And it's tough t- tough timing in that sense because I think he had just emerged from a 6-for-56 or something like that slump with a 3-for-4 uh, night right before he got hurt. Uh, what does it mean now? It probably means a lot of t- Tyler Walls at shortstop, if only because he's the best shortstop defender on the roster now and you might see uh some trickle down benefits for Vidal Brujan, Isaac Paredes, both of whom have been on the roster for a few weeks and kind of uh playing that job share team pretzel kind of thing moving around a little bit playing part-time uh but you know like I said Franco had been in the lineup every day so this is a this this is a full-time opening that you know now has to get covered by these guys the problem is none of these guys have really been acquitting themselves super well, uh, especially at the plate. Uh, but now if it was a uh, Bruhan or 
Paredes in the lineup every day, primarily at second base since Brandon Lau went out. Uh, now you're going to see at least two of those guys. Uh, you know, they have to cover both second base and shortstop. So, uh, and, and you know, in some days, even all three, all three of uh, Walls, Bruhan, and Paredes will be in there. So, uh, the opportunity is improved for all of them. And we'll, you know, and that means just the door is open if one of them gets hot and Frank goes out for a few weeks, they could start getting their their name on the lineup card three days out of four. I remember when Paredes first came up, he really kind of started with a bang, uh, three home runs fairly early on in his tenure, but he's only hitting 200 and his, bat, his on-base percentage is under 250. And when you have those kind of numbers and the, the team is very stat-oriented, as we know, and his max exit velocity, I checked on uh, Baseball Savant, 40th percentile. It's getting t- down towards those dark blue numbers that you really don't want to have in an offensive player. He's just not hitting the ball hard. And it makes me wonder how long is his rope likely to be, even if they want to maintain this, you know, jack-of-all-trades kind of arrangement where uh, they they shift guys around defensively and try to get them into the lineup. If you're just not hitting at all, which seems to be the case with uh, Paredes getting a home run every week or something like that and just whiffing and grounding out and hitting into double plays all the rest of the time, that's not going to work either. Yeah, if you're going to be that bad at the plate, you'd better be a defensive wizard to establish some value, right? And the only guy in this conversation that I think is close to that kind of defensive status is Walls, which probably, again, means he's the default op- option at shortstop. And then, as you say, there's a trickle-down effect here because this lineup gets watered down, and obviously the Rays are trying to make up the ground on the Red Hot Yankees. And the you know you, if you had Wander Franco, you could carry a Bruhan or uh, Paredes at second base, even if they weren't hitting while you were waiting on Brandon Lau. But you know, now you're carrying the shortstop spot as well, and you don't want too many of these uh, dead weights in the lineup. They really start to have an overall uh, negative effect on your run scoring ability. So, yes, if things continue to, if these bats continue to look like noodles, then we might see further changes or a, a deck span up kind of situation. And while we're talking, I looked up Vidal Bruhan, and if anything, he's even worse than Paredes, at least this year. Uh, no home runs. He's batting 150 with a 209 on base percentage and his max exit velocity. You thought 40th percentile was bad. How about 16th? We're getting we're getting to the point where one of us might get be able to get into the conversation and and have a batting contest that we could win with him. Uh, it's a, going to be an interesting thing. I like watching what Tampa does because I think they're smart and I think we can learn from them insofar as managing our own fantasy rosters. But uh, sometimes you just run out of players, and I think maybe that's going to be what the case is here. And I don't know what they're going to do about it if especially if Franco's gone for three weeks or something. Bone bruise, you know, it can be tough. Yeah, it can be. And, you know, it's interesting. You're right. Everything you say about the Rays is, of course, true. And I didn't quite process this when they made the trade. Obviously, they got Paredes from Detroit for Austin Meadows right before the season started. And it didn't occur to me at the time. I thought they were just sort of collecting assets. And obviously, there was a salary differential there they were making up. But maybe Paredes wasn't just, you know, the fill in the blank guy they got for getting rid of Meadows. Now, I'm given what you say about, you know, Bruhan's poor contact. And now that he's had a couple of cups of coffee and has not made the transition to the majors. Well, I'm starting to wonder if maybe Paredes was a, a hedge against being stuck with Vidal Bruhan in this, in this scenario, because maybe the, maybe the very smart Rays are 
starting to have some doubts about whether Bruan is ever going to make the leap. It's early to say that, but uh, you know the Paredes being in this picture combined with Bruhan continuing to struggle has me at least wondering. It's something worth wondering about. Of course, it would be way more interesting to wonder about if Paredes was hitting, but of course he's not hitting either. So um, I wonder if there's somebody else. Do you have any idea when we should expect Brandon Lau back? Lau's injury was probably the more significant than Franco's. It sounded to me like that was going to be a month plus, and I think we're in about week two of him being out, right? So I, I would imagine he's in that range that is probably early July. And the problem with early July injuries is they very often become right after the all-star break. Right. So right. We, we might see him for a cup of coffee or they might decide to just hold him out till after the break. I, I've got him in a, a bunch of leagues and that's sort of the mindset I'm approaching it with. We talked last week about the pending big league debut of Roger Clemens's son, Cody with a K of course, he's not a pitcher, a slugging infield outfield prospect in the Detroit organization, Ryan Hoover, one of the new additions at Baseball HQ, covers the Tigers in his American League Central playing time tomorrow column. How did Cody Clemens' first few games go? Yeah, kudos to Ryan Hoover for you know for calling this out right before it happened. Uh, as far as Clemens' debut, um, I think the best thing I can say about it is I saw on Twitter that uh, Dad Roger was able to hop a flight and get to the game in time, but he didn't see much. Uh, Clemens... Clemens, the younger, started uh, three times. I think he hit sixth all three times, and he went 0 for 9 with a walk across three games, uh, starting a couple of times in second base, a couple of a couple of times in left field, and I think once in second base. He had been called up to replace the injured outfielder, Robbie Grossman, and if they're looking at him as an outfielder, it's not like they lack for options. He's going to have to do something pretty quick. Yeah, you know, we went, we went over this last week, and we sort of said that there are so many guys not hitting in Detroit that how much worse could Clemens be and or, you know, there are any number of guys he could displace. And it turned out Grossman went on the IL and that's how he got this opportunity. But you're right. over nine with a walk does not quickly demonstrate that he is any better than any of the other guys who are currently not hitting in that lineup. So I, you know, I'm sure he's got a little more rope, but you know, after this weekend, uh, you know, if he has not demonstrated that he's, going to provide something to the lineup that they aren't currently getting from Willie Castro and Harold Castro, Fidel Castro, Jazz Cameron and Mike Cameron and Prime Minister Cameron and <laughs> all, yeah. of the, all of these guys who are currently not hitting. And, you know, if Clemens is indistinguishable from all of the guys who are not hitting, then he probably will not be here long. Not exactly George Foster, Cesar Geronimo, and uh, Ken Griffey. No, or Jim Rice, Fred Wynn, Dwight Evans either. If we're, uh, you know, we can, if we want to play both sides of the 1975 World Series, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, let's get back to the Tigers. They expect to have Austin Meadows back from the IL pretty soon. He had vertigo, so there's another name to throw into the mix. And uh, by rough, my rough count, it's 147 guys battling for three spots worth, but. Over and above all of that, Ryan Hoover's report on the Tigers also mentioned the pending return of super prospect Riley Green, the fifth overall draft pick in the 2019 draft, and a guy who is worth looking at. Yeah, very much so. I think I did see the same note probably that you're referencing about Meadows as well, that both Meadows and Riley Green are now on or about to be on rehab assignments in AAA. Uh, Green, of course, having been out since... Uh, late spring training is going to ha- probably have the longer stint, whereas Meadows has only been out for 
a couple of weeks with that vertigo. Uh, but yeah, there are going to be a lot of people watching that Riley Green rehab. Uh, you know, widely rostered in draft and holds, and you know, offseason drafts. Anybody who who uh, drafted before he got hurt late in spring training were uh, you, you know we're paying you know in some cases some significant draft capital for him. He was supposed to be the starting center fielder right out of the gate, uh, but fouled a ball off his foot. You know, I think in the last week of camp or so. So but almost everybody. You know, it was very late in draft season. So anybody who drafted, you know, unless you drafted like the weekend after opening day, you probably drafted him on the expectation he was healthy and confirmed. Uh, so he's he's on his rehab. Uh, I, he's even running. He tried a couple of stolen bases already. Um, and now, as I say, he just arrived at AAA, uh, where, you know, three for 11, I think is what I saw there. Home run, couple of walks, uh there's some rust to shake off there. I don't think it's going to be a quick call up, but you know, another week or so, I would think we're probably going to be uh, going to be bidding on him in, in fab. If not this Sunday, then next Sunday sounds about right to me. And if you're keeping score at home, uh, green's 2019 draft also included uh, top pick Adley Rutschman, number two, Bobby Witt Jr., number three, Andrew Vaughn, and number 14, Bryson Stott. Nick and I talked about him in the National League News a minute ago when we were talking about Gene Segura. So a pretty good draft, and a lot of them starting to show up. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, some of the uh, some of the early payoffs there are, uh, you know, pr- pretty quick returns given uh, the pandemic interruption, and, you know, all of these guys have had a you know, sort of by definition had a bumpy ride in transitioning to professional baseball, but we're starting to see some of these guys deliver and it'll be probably be a couple more years before we really have the counters the, the other side of that coin and have the, uh, the busts that we make fun of. Right. Yeah. And on the pitching side, Alec Manoa, George Kirby and Ethan small. So, uh, they're starting to make their way up as well. Uh, this would have been a much more significant story not that long ago. Well, maybe a little long ago, but Boston put right-handed reliever Matt Barnes on the 15-day IL. He's got shoulder inflammation, which might explain a lot of things. Chris Olson covers the Red Sox for playing time today. What's next in the badly beleaguered Boston bullpen? Badly beleaguered is right. Uh, Barnes really never put himself into a position to be in a high-leverage role here. He was kind of working in mop-up side duty to start the season, and we're sort of just suggesting that he was just behind by a couple of weeks. They were bringing him along slowly, but he never really showed improvement. Sometimes his velocity looked better, but he really, you know, the cause and effect here really just does seem to be that he's been completely ruined ever since the sticky substance ban about a year ago now. Uh, So... Where do the Red Sox go next? They've tried Hansel Robles, and he has failed in just about every opportunity. But un- previously unnamed and unknown, even to me, John Schreiber seems like he has sort of done that trick where he stands still when everybody around him takes two steps back. And as a result, he's now at <laughs> the front of the line. <laughs> it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of the way I characterize this. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a game the other night where uh, – you know, Tanner Houck did his multi-inning relief thing, uh, pitched the seventh and eighth innings and had a uh, four-to-one lead against the Reds, and it was Schreiber warming up when it was still four-to-one, and he was lining up to come in for the ninth, and uh, the Red Sox blew it open, and that game got to be seven-to-one or eight-to-one, so when Schreiber pitched the ninth, it was a non-save situation, but uh, Alex Cora had called his name on the bullpen phone when it was a save situation, so... Um, I think if there's a save op for the Red Sox this weekend, it's going to be Schreiber. 
ahead of uh, Matt Scrum, Jake Diekman, the aforementioned Robles, who is, uh, I think, on a DL now anyway. Um, Schreiber has been the only one in that entire bullpen who I would even characterize as competent. So uh, I, I think he's very much the default choice. But uh, unless there's a acquisition from outside the organization, if Schreiber stays somewhat effective, I, I think he could hold this role for a little while. His skills don't look all that great on StatCast uh, via Baseball Savant, I have to say. Uh, pretty pretty mundane. I think maybe uh, I've been, I was looking at Matt Strom and Jake Diekman earlier, and Diekman seemed to be getting the chances, but Strom seemed to have the skills. And Boston went with neither of them, it looks like, and instead of going with Schreiber because he's a right-handed alternative. I think that's right. Uh, you know, this the problems in this bullpen start well before the ninth inning, right? So the Cora is trying to put together some kind of, uh, as our friend Greg Jewett, uh, who writes for us and is also the bullpen analyst for the Athletic, likes, likes to reference it, a, a leverage ladder here. And I think uh, Cora's ladder involves the likes of Strom and Diekman working in the middle. And every couple of days, he's got Hauk for that multi-inning binge that we were talking about happened the other night where he gives you two or three innings twice a week, but he's trying to build some kind of, you know, ladder is probably giving this group too much, too much credit. It's more of a, uh, a rope bridge or a scaffolding, but it, uh, it leads to, uh, I, I think right now it leads to Schreiber in the ninth, just because literally everybody else who has gotten the ball in the ninth inning has been absolutely terrible. Kansas City put living legend right-hander Zach Greinke on the 15-day IL on Monday. Right flexor strain, you don't like to hear that. Uh, Kansas City also put living non-legends left-hander Gabe Spire and right-hander Matt Peacock on the IL. They activated Kyle Isbell, the outfielder, and they called up right-handers Erodis Vizcaino and Jose Cuas from AAA. Jock Thompson covers the Royals for playing time today. What's going on in Kansas City? Well, uh, Zach Greinke getting a... Uh a forearm strain is a blow to all the people who think all the arm injuries are caused by overthrowing and too much velocity. Right. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. he hasn't broken up, a, a, broken a plane of glass in a few years. And yet his, uh, his forearm is still barking as well. Uh, in terms of the playing time allocations here, it, it, it's a debit for Grinky. We shaved a couple of uh, percentage off his playing time while we wait and see how serious this is. Uh, and it does sound serious, but it jocks in the mode of waiting for confirmation. But, uh, you know, they, if we remember our sort of preseason take on this signing, Greinke was sort of the the innings eater and the buffer for, uh, you know, the, the, the core of kids who are uh, comprising the, you know, present and future Royals rotation. So uh, I, I think the best way to say who gets any, any lost playing time from Greinke is everyone, right? It'll, it'll take the village. Everyone and no one at the same time. You know, Ray, when I first saw this item, I saw this big, long list of transactions for Kansas City, and I thought, I just picked up Vinny Pasquantino in Fab last weekend, and I thought, he's this has got to be it. There's so many moves here that Kansas City's making. It's got to be him, maybe Nick Prado as well. Not so much. You're still waiting, and yes. as our Royal, Royals faithful, right? They've got... Uh... You know, they've got MJ Melendez up that, and they've got Bobby Witt, but waiting for uh, Pasquantino and Nick Prado is an exercise in patience now and seems like for at least a little while longer because, like you said, they've got, you know, they've had plenty of times where they've 
sent a fax to the league office and could have tacked that on the bottom of it and even you know used the same dime for the phone call right and didn't even uh, didn't even bother doing that so it seems like their intent is to not do that anytime soon we are we're waiting in in terms of our playing time allocations we've got Pasquantino at 25% playing time for the rest of the year and Prado at 20 Prado at 25 as well so you know we're expecting them before September certainly uh how much before I guess is what we're all wondering about did you see that video clip uh, where I th- I don't know if it was Dayton Moore or the general manager I can't remember, but they were the, whoever it was was talking about it was very confusing. They kind of seemed to be making the point that we don't want to have these guys come up and fail because we'd rather have Carlos Santana, <laughs> you know, who's, yeah. who's d- demonstrated beyond doubt that he's going to fail. And meanwhile, I know Pasquantino in particular is just raking in AAA. Yeah, it's. That was circular logic at its finest. I did see that clip, and sure, they you know they they have committed to wit, and Melendez is up sort of out of necessity, so they can't say they haven't done anything. Maybe they feel like that this is a way of sort of spacing them out uh, for whatever reason that is. But every time I see something like Adley Rushman's arrival in Baltimore a couple of weeks ago, and you know the viral video of the AAA manager telling him that he's getting the call and then him getting a standing ovation from the, you know, seven Baltimore fans who were actually at Camden Yards that night. Like, why do you, why do they not want this? You know, why, why, why do you not want to bring some of that to your own organization? Nobody is coming out to Royal stadium to see Carlos Santana. I can tell you that much. No. And it makes you wonder. I know that there's a, ever since, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, but the Philadelphia 76ers general manager, basically announced to the fan base, this is going to take five years. We're building through the draft and we're not going to sign many free agents and we're going to get a really solid core put together. Then we'll sign free agents and then we'll be competitive. And lo and behold, it actually went that way. He succeeded in that. And I wonder if the Kansas City Royals are thinking they can try the same business with their fans and say, we don't want to bring these guys up too soon. You know, we're building a core, we're doing it methodically. It's a process. But then you look at what they're doing and, and whatever the process is, it's not working. And it's been going on for longer than it took uh, Philadelphia to get back into the competitive nature of NBA basketball. Yeah. And sure. The 76ers comparison holds a little bit of water, but you know, the, the rules in baseball regarding service time are different as well. Right. And right. if we're, you know, if we're not past the super two deadline for staying out of arbitration for a year, we're close to it. And, you know, I made the Rutschman con- comparison earlier, but Rutschman is a better prospect, you know, by, by leaps and bounds than Prado and Pasquantino. These are fine prospects, but these are not the kind of guys where getting them an arbitration a year early is likely to cost you $10 million or something like that, which arguably would be the case for a Rutschman or a you know, Ronald Acuna four years ago or what have you. But th- these are nice players, but it's not going to break your budget to even if you miscalculate the Super 2 date. And, you know, there is something to be said for keeping your fans happy and watching your product on television and, you know, buying hot dogs. But, you know, this is why you and I have a podcast and date more rooms to the Royals. And I know there are those who think it should be the other way around, but uh, <laughs> we'll leave that at that. It's, do we know when the Super 2 arbitration deadline is? 
It moves around. It's like Easter or uh, Passover. The, the Super 2 is the one that it goes to the top 22% of the rookies who appear in the league that year. So it's not a hard date as much as it's they make a list of all rookies service time at the end of the year and draw the line at whoever the top 22% of them are. And those guys get the, uh, the super two eligibility, but it's, you know, historically, I think it's around mid June. So it's, uh, you know, we're probably not that far away from it. Well, let's hope not. Uh, finally, let's talk about the White Sox got some good news. They could use some good news. Uh, they activated outfield, superstar, I'm going to say, uh, Luis Robert or Robert. I've heard now that he wants to be called Robert after he said earlier he didn't. I don't know. Is this... it back to Robert? Are you serious? That's I what just I heard. My... <laughs> I just taught myself to say Robert. <laughs> yeah, I know. It took took me a year or two. And then I, I heard somewhere else a, a, a discussion exactly like the one we're having. And, and one guy was saying, what? Really? Are they, they switched it back? And yeah, that's what I heard. So it, it's one of those things that's making the rounds and uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to call him Luis Robert because that's the last thing I heard. Eventually he's going to be, want to be called uh, Luis Sanchez or something and switch names entirely like some players have done in the past. Whatever it is, he was on the COVID list. Now he's off the COVID list. He, he came off on Tuesday, didn't actually play, got back into action on Wednesday. Looked pretty good. I'm going to start calling him Lou Bob just because that's <laughs> insulated from the next change. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, he, he looked good. He's, you know, two games back, he's three for eight. He's got a double. Uh, he threw a stolen base in there for good measure. Uh, you know, he struck out a couple of times, but he was doing that plenty before the COVID list. Um, actually, he wasn't doing it that much. He's under twenty percent in that department, which by league standards is, uh, you know, is both much better than average and better than what we saw from him in his rookie year. So, uh, you know, you're. I, I would suggest you're not wrong in calling him a superstar, but it's a, uh, it's a reminder that this is still a consolidating and improving, improving skill set, right? Yeah. If you look at how the guy plays or any baseball player plays, it kind of like they go through phases where they figure things out and they have that peak where everything falls into place and they're just really good for a, a while and then they fall off. I and mean, this is nothing new. You guys who do projections have models built on that uh, aging curve uh, as it's called. The thing is, I also believe that the younger a guy comes to the to the big leagues, the likelier he is to accelerate that curve. Am I wrong? I think that's probably right. And you know, the other thing that comes into play, with, especially with Lou Bob here, is that you know you, he brings a pretty broad base of skills to the to the game, and those individual skills behave differently and mature differently. Right? We're talking about on the one hand you know, his, you know, some of the improvements at strikeout rate on the flip side of that, you know, his power metrics are lagging a little bit from what we first saw, but that's kind of not a uncommon corollary that happens during these skill consolidations. He's working on, you know, making more contact swing at better pitches. And, you know, sometimes those adjustments, you know, lead to the power disappearing for a little while until he can sort of consolidate everything back together. But we also mentioned the speed skills, which, you know, play very well and, you know, are a skill of the young. So what we might very well see, uh, you know, in the next couple of years from him is, uh, you know, the batting average and power combination continue to improve, but the stolen bases might, you know, tr he's only 24, but the stolen bases might be, uh, you know, something that we see in his early 20s that don't necessarily last that long in his career, especially if we start getting concerned about 
guard superstar in the lineup with, you know, as we say, with, uh, as we, we see with the, you know, now 30 year old Mike Trout, for instance. So, you know, there, the, uh, the skill set isn't static and, you know, there are a lot of both levers and interplay between the, uh, the various metrics that are maturing at different times that all we, that all make the projection business very difficult. And of course, he's a plus plus outfielder defensively. That's something that'll help keep him in in the lineup and on the field when he's maybe struggling a little bit with the bat. I, I my my question for you, Ray, is as you look forward uh, this year, I saw Lou Bob getting uh, drafted, sort of mid second round ish, a little higher in some instances. Is is there a chance that he gets to the first round in next year's drafts? I think there is, uh, you know, certainly a couple of things have to happen. Uh, you know, I'm looking at his uh, page on the, the, his player link page on the website right now, and we've got his baseball forecaster comment there featured prominently. And we threw it up 30 homers, 25 stolen bases on him uh, in 145 at bats this year. He's got six and seven already. So on a, you know, full season annualized basis, he's, you know, in the neighborhood of that. If he hits 290 and is even 25-25 or 22-28 or something like that, you know, for a 25-year-old, you know, coming into next season, yeah, that's going to be a pretty consensus top 10 pick, I would think. But a bunch of things have to happen before that. Uh, you know, we've got a whole two-thirds of the season left to play or so. And the first thing is he's got to stay healthy and in the lineup and rack up those counting stats. So we'll see if that happens. But I would say the path is there for sure. And you mentioned the the increase in batting average maybe being significant because it indicates that he's being more selective at the plate. Uh, I think he's got room to be better at that, shall we say. He's the first percentile in chasing pitches outside the strike zone as far as StatCast stats go. So he's still swinging. He's making contact with a lot of those pitches, but you can't imagine that he's doing a whole lot with them unless he's the second coming of Vladimir Guerrero Sr. and you know hitting them off his shoe tops and getting them on the bounce and stuff. Yeah, the profile does actually suggest that that's kind of the direction he's going, right? He's cutting his strikeouts, but he's cutting his strikeouts by swinging at and putting balls in play that he probably shouldn't be swinging at at all, right? Right, that, that that's what I was thinking, yep. Ray, uh, thanks a million. Uh, always fun to talk to you, and we'll talk again next week. And we're already planning our special roundtable edition for the All-Star break. Yes, I'm looking forward to that one. I've got my calendar blocked, and uh, it's my annual – I think we're actually doing it on the day of the All-Star game this year, right? So I get to uh, – we're not doing like a four-hour pregame show. It's not like that, right? No, nothing like that. Although I guess we could do that and put it on a little later in the day than we actually have planned. But I'm looking forward to that. And of course, I'm looking forward to talking with you again next week. Thanks a million. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Peter. Ray Murphy is co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site. And he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Patton and Company, Prospect361.com, and the P361 podcast. He's coming to the plate for his second plate appearance next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of what's coming up on the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It'll be another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, plus all the usual great stuff, our National League and American League news reports, our Baseball HQ commentaries, all coming up next Friday on a Friday full edition with Scott Pianowski at Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Patton & Company, Prospect361.com, and the P361 podcast. Tim, welcome back to part two. I see we're going to talk about some Japanese baseball in this segment. Yeah, well, you're uh, widely regarded in the fantasy baseball community as one of our leading experts on Japanese leagues and Korean baseball, if I'm not mistaken. How did you get interested in those leagues? Going back to the late 90s, early 2000s, I was in a league that basically allowed you to draft anybody you wanted, much the same as the XFL. And uh, I just took a look at it, saw it as an opportunity, and started following the game uh, which led me at, at that time, I was hanging out on Peter Kreutzer's message board, Ask Rotoman, and uh, playing fairly well in leagues. And Peter asked if anybody knew anything about uh, Japanese baseball players. And I responded to his request. And uh, it just sort of grew, grew from there. Peter printed a capsule on Daisuke Matsuzaka that I put together years ago for him coming over. And it just continued to grow and uh, I, I love it. It's something I've been doing for, for years now and it, it's a lot of fun. Have you ever gone over to Japan to watch games? No, I've never been to Japan. With the, uh, it, it's sort of interesting. When I first started, uh, there were very, very few English sites. So I had to use a lot of uh, translator programs to gather information. Uh, today, things are very different. There are English language sites available all over the place. Uh, and it makes it a lot easier when it comes to garnering information about these players. But it was, a fun, like I said, it was a fun journey. Uh, nothing more fun than taking and dumping articles into translator sites so you can read them in English. And it was a lot of work in the early years, but I had a lot of fun with it uh, and enjoyed it immensely. I bet it was tough because the translation services, the translation programs weren't exactly uh, Google-level quality then either. No, it, uh, I'll just say it was fun, yeah, and a challenge, it really was. But at that point in time, there weren't that many people that were interested in that in that field. So any information you could provide was certainly appreciated uh, by those doing, you know, magazines, looking at... Uh, future player potentials crossing, you know, crossing over, you know, in deeper dynasty leagues. Uh, so it sort of allowed, allowed me to carve out my little niche in the fantasy baseball world. It's an interesting process, isn't it? Because unlike players coming up through our minor leagues, you've got the whole question of whether the Japanese team is going to post the player, and if so, when he's likely to get posted, and if so, what talent level does he have when he comes over to the league? It's a much more complicated deal than for us looking at, uh, um, I don't know, Adley Rutschman and saying, yeah, we've followed this guy right from the start. Well, yeah, you, you know, you've got so many, so many nuances that come into play on top of just the baseball, you know, you've got a change in language, a change in culture, uh, you know, the players, players coming over, uh, heading in both directions. You know, you're married, you got kids, you've got education there. Uh, on top of the obvious baseball, there's a million different uh, nuances that come into play. So yeah, it is. Uh, it is not an easy task. It, it really is, especially with hitters. Pitchers, it's a little easier. Hitters, uh, you know, the parts are a little bit smaller. Uh, the quality of pitching. Uh, across the board in Japan is not at the same level. You know, uh, your aces are your aces. 
but when you get into three, four, five, it's it's a little different, I think, than Major League Baseball. It's been well established here that teams have more or less adopted the walk plus home run approach to uh, to their offenses. But Japanese baseball traditionally, or historically, maybe I should say, has been a much more station to station, sloppy slap ball type of. Uh, small ball approach is it still the same in japan are they still playing a more small ball type approach yeah it's uh they will bunt they'll advance runners it is more of a traditional game than the game that we're currently seeing in major league baseball getting on base counts a little bit more the last time you were on the pod tim you said each team is allowed four non-japanese players per japanese league team but how do they acquire and develop their own Japanese players? Is there a minor league system there, or how does that work? Yeah, there's a minor league system developed, uh, broken into two conferences, and each each team has their their one minor league team uh, that they use to develop players. So that adds another layer of complexity. Do you look at the minor leagues in Japan, or are you strictly focused on the ones that make it all the way up to their big leagues? Uh, I'll follow some of the minor league, uh, some of the minor league action for players. Like I started uh, looking at Shoei Otani, and now granted, he basically started right from square one uh, in their major league. But players like Otani, uh, Sasaki. Uh, the the kid from North America, Stewart, that went over. I'll follow some of their some of their act, uh, activity in the minors, but for the most part, I'm I'm focused on players that I believe will eventually, at some point in time, head to Major League Baseball, and those are the players playing at the big league level, not at not at the minors. Uh, Here's a two part question for you, Tim. Uh, first of all, how do you calibrate Japanese league stats? to MLEs, and at what level would you put Japanese baseball versus, say, AAA? I, I think what you have in Japan is you have you have elite players, okay, that are basically Major League Baseball ready. And after that, the big difference is not in those elite players. It's in the everyday player that falls into the you know regular roster spots on a day, on a regular basis. I would probably equate it with with AAA as far as an overall level. But the elite players are will be elite players in Japan, in Major League Baseball, in pretty well any league. It's the the middle tier of players where there's a substantial difference i believe in talent which japanese league stats track most closely to major league baseball do you think the hitters stats are more reflective or the pitchers definitely the pitchers the parks are smaller uh the caliber of pitching after that elite level starter is not uh not the same as as a major league as a major league level it's much harder to predict a hitter than it is a kid who can throw the ball 100 miles an hour with good breaking stuff that hundred miles an hour with good breaking stuff. It doesn't matter what league you're playing in. Those, those numbers are going to be good. Do you have access to advanced stats like the Statcast stuff with pitch movement, release point, that kind of stuff? Is that out there anywhere for you to check? Um, there is a, uh, a provider in Japan. It's called Delta graphs. 
and they provide all of the advanced uh, all the advanced statistics. Uh, the only problem with it is it they don't do anything translated to English. Okay, so it's all in all in Japanese. But as far as advanced stats, the Japanese leagues uh, have been using advanced stats for years. Remember uh, Koji Fujikawa came over, played for the Cubs for a few years? I do, yeah. Well, back in 2006, they were actually measuring spin rates on Fujikawa. And that was well before, I believe, Major League Baseball got into looking at spin rates and advanced stats. So it is prevalent in the Japanese game. There's no doubt about it. But again, uh, more for pitching than hitting. Does Japanese baseball use starters and relievers as similarly to what major league teams do? There are no Tampa Bay Rays formats in in Japan. It's much more of a traditional system where you have... uh, Guys that garner holds and consistently pitch the eighth inning. Pitchers are defined as closers for the most part. And change does occur based on, obviously, effectiveness. But it's it's much more traditional than it is the current model that we see Major League Baseball heading to. Especially, you know, when you start looking at teams that, uh, like the Rays. Okay, that could, by the end of the year, have 15 pitchers with a save, right? You, you won't see that in Japan. And they're not using openers or oversized bullpens, any of that kind of stuff? No, uh, the the standard uh, Japanese rotation, they play six games a week. Okay, and teams go with six-man rotations. And they all have their six starters, and they pitch once a week. Do they go deeper into games than we would expect most of our starters uh, under today's management systems? Uh, under today's systems, yeah, definitely. Uh, what What is the average start? It's got to be, what, between five and six innings? I think it's closer uh, to five than it is to six. And I've heard, I heard on a podcast recently that the average start is now under five, which means there's going to be a lot more wins for relievers. What, what's the deal in Japan? Uh, no, you're looking at longer outings. Definitely longer outings. And, you know, hey, for, the, for those playing in quality start leagues, it might be time to redefine what a quality start is based on what we're seeing in Major League Baseball right now. Yeah, I agree. It's starting to basically get fairly ridiculous. Uh, although, you know, for those who say the rules of fantasy baseball are just ways to assess who's good at figuring out what the players are doing and, and is willing to put their money where their mouth is, basically. So, it, you know, if modern baseball has fewer guys getting quality starts than it just theoretically anyway would make them more valuable at draft if you didn't change anything as mm-hmm. as you know eight inning guys like Max Scherzer used to always be more valuable than six inning guys maybe it's going to just the threshold is going to change where guys look good relative to the norm uh have japanese or korean baseball for that matter to your knowledge had any issues with the baseballs themselves like major league baseball has had the last couple of years it's sort of interesting. There, there was a scandal back in, oh, I believe it was somewhere around 2013. And the baseball was changed midseason without alerting anybody. The commissioner of baseball at that time in Japan resigned in disgrace as a result of that. It was, it was scandalous in nature. Uh, I wish Rob Manford would do the same. Uh, 
I don't think uh, to maintain the integrity and consistency of the game, I don't think the baseball should be changed without the knowledge of all parties. And I strongly believe what Rob Manfred has done over the past several years is wrong. Very, very wrong. And uh, like I said, when there are changes done in Japan, everybody is advised and knows about it in advance. Most of us have a pretty decent idea of uh, how the Japanese posting system works, but how do Korean players make their way to Major League Baseball? Uh, at one point in time, there were separate uh, separate posting uh, uh agreements between both leagues but they have now consolidated that and the japanese and korean posting system is exactly the same okay well that simplifies things you're well known for your very thorough scouting that we've talked about of japanese and korean players what are you looking for when you scout players from korean and japanese ball as far as their ability to make it in the big leagues well i i think the first thing is you've got you've got a you've got to find players that have expressed an interest in playing in major league baseball. Okay. When you're just looking at, at, at players, I'm, I'm looking at for, uh, for hitters, the ability to control a strike zone for pitchers. I'm, I'm looking at velocity. I'm looking at, uh, what they do with the breaking stuff, much the same. There's not a whole lot of difference per se in how I would scout somebody from North America. With the difference being, I'm looking at entirely tape. Uh, I think the key when you start looking is at players that might be coming over is to find players who've expressed an interest. Like, uh, you know, Roki Sazaki this year has generated an incredible level of interest in North America. And rightfully so. You know, he threw a perfect game. I think it was only the 16th thrown in Japan. Uh he followed that up by eight perfect innings in his next game before he was lifted and uh, at no decision. You know, the kid is right now one of the top elite pitchers in in Japan. He's got a 133 or a 94 strikeouts and 61 innings pitch and only eight walks, you know, but, and here's the big but, the kid's 20 years old. You know, it's fine to follow and track that player. But at this stage of the game, he's at least four or five years away. Like if you are in a dynasty situation where you can roster somebody uh, long term, yeah, it's fine to take a look at that. But the reality of the situation is it's going to be a long time before we see him in North America. Make sure you factor that into all of your decisions. I think the assumption that we make here in North America, because it's Hey, it's Major League Baseball. Why wouldn't you? But are there players in Korean and Japanese baseball who might have the skills to make it in Major League Baseball, but who just aren't interested because they don't want to come here? Yeah, there are players. Uh, uh, Tetsuya Yamada is one. Uh, arguably, he is one of the best best hitters on the on the planet. A uh, second baseman. Uh, he he's, he had what I think four to five seasons. Uh, we're 30-30. Kick and play, but he just signed a long-term agreement. He's very happy playing in Japan and has no interest playing in Major League Baseball. And there are elite players that, hey, you can make a good living in Japan. You know, it, it you can do very, very well. You're comfortable at home. And, hey, 
just like anywhere else uh, in in North America, if you're if you're a star in the Japanese game, you're treated very very well. So there are players that just don't have an interest, and that's just the nature of the beast. You can't blame them. They're at home, they're treated well. It's uh, good money opportunities. Hey, if you're if you're happy staying where you are, stay where you are, right? I suppose so. I, I know that every time I hear a really top quality Japanese player, starting with Ichiro more than perhaps most, uh, the previous yeah. Japanese guys, to my recollection, were kind of on the uh, downside of their careers and they thought they could make maybe make a little more money playing in the majors towards the end of their careers than they would have in Japan. Uh, but Ichiro made no bones about it. He was the best hitter in the Japanese league by quite a wide margin. And he said, I want to see if I can do this in the show. Yeah. And, and I, th from what I've read since that is, uh, an interest of a lot of Japanese players that they know that they can master the Japanese baseball and they just want to see how they do against the best in the world, which is what major league baseball is. Well, yeah, there, there is, there's no doubt about that. And there are a slew of players that uh, have achieved top status in Japan and yeah, that they want to, but at the same point in time, there, there are players that are perfectly happy staying at home and representing their country on the international stage uh, when they get the opportunity and playing, playing very well. So it's, again, it's a, it's it's a mixed uh, it's a mixed situation. Uh, I do definitely agree. The players that that want to explore the concept of playing in the best league in the world, they will come to North America, uh, and as, as soon as possible. Otani being one, okay, and you know, what a one. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, again, when you start talking, we're talking a gen generational type player with Shohei Otani. We might not never see in our lifetime, another Shoei Otani. So again, he had nothing left to prove in Japan and wanted to see how his skills played out at the North American level. And I think we can say it's been a success, right? It certainly has. Did Otani somehow get around the posting system? He seems to have got here a lot younger than a lot of Japanese players. Um, no, he, he didn't get around the posting system. Actually, I was very surprised that Otani posted when he did because had he waited another another year, he would have bought, uh, beat the 25-year-old international thing and, and could have done a lot better. But at the same point in time, I Otani's a, a different breed. It, it, not money motivated. It was, it was the challenge of playing at the top level. So he took a posting early, took less money for it because he wanted to play in Major League Baseball, and his team gave him that opportunity. So they, I, I take my hat off to Shoei Otani. I really do. He could have stayed in Japan for another year or two and made a lot more money when he came over. I guess, but like you said, for any player in, in any pro sport, at a certain point, the money starts to be almost completely abstract, you know, am I going to get 24 million or 26 million? Well, it, does it matter really? You know, once you get past <laughs> about five, you're probably, it's just all gravy from that point of view. Hey, Tim, if our listeners want to look up Japanese baseball and follow it for themselves, what good information sources can they use? Well, there's a couple sites that I use on a regular basis, uh, npb.jp dot ing, uh, slash English the the official uh, Japanese baseball site 
we'll provide you with all of the stats, all of the current leaders, uh, all the statistical information you could pretty well want. Uh, uh, Dan Kurtz runs a site called uh, MyKBO, and that will provide you with all of the Caribbean League uh stats a uh, very very good site and I, I, I salute dan kurtz for running it on an individual basis uh, jim allen uh, in japan uh, an american who's been living in japan for years and years and years worked for one of the major papers there he is probably the foremost expert in my opinion on japanese baseball follow follow jim on on twitter he does regular uh uh, he does regular updates there and articles. And for Korea, I would highly recommend uh, uh, Transplanted Canadian, uh, Ji Ho Yo, uh, Y O O. He uh, he's a writer uh, originally from Toronto, but he writes for Yonhap News. And I would I would be following him because he does a great job on. Uh, everything English language coming out of the KBO. So there, there's some, there's some recommendations that I, I think our, our listeners will find a value about. And now for the $64 question, Tim, what Japanese or Korean players are on your radar for the next season or two? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, Kode Senga has to be a uh, pitcher has to be, has to be on everybody's list. Uh, He's wanted to come over for a long time, express, expressed his interest to do exactly that, and he's available as a free agent uh, as of this offseason coming up. Senga is one. Uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto won all the awards in Japan as a pitcher last year. Uh, he's targeting 2024 uh, again. It will depend. His team is not re- real keen on posting, uh, but he's one player that definitely I think we should be interested in. If you're looking at relief pitchers, uh, there's a couple of Cuban kids, Radio Martinez and Levan Moinello, uh, both doing very, very well, sub one ERAs. Uh, Long term, uh, Roki Sasaki. We don't know what he's going to do, but if you're in a dynasty league that lets you hold players for a long period of time, yeah, I'm definitely interested. And as a hitter, uh, again, we don't know what his intentions are at this point in time, but he, uh, Munataka Murakami has 119 career home runs, and he's in his age 22 season. That sounds like a lot of home runs. That's a lot of home runs. He's a big time power hitter. Again, I don't know what his intentions are. I haven't seen anything publicly expressed, but if you're looking for a bat that you can stash away for a few years until you find out, he's definitely somebody that would be of interest. As far as North Americans, the the only one that has caught my attention right now is Scott McGough, uh, closer, 14 saves this year, and his ERA is under one. So at some point in time, he could be looking at returning to Major League Baseball. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but more players are taking that path where they kind of wash out of Major League Baseball for whatever reason. They go over to uh, Japan or Korea, and they play there, and they basically rebuild their stock, and then they come back and they do fairly well here, sometimes very well. Is that getting to be more common, or am I just imagining it because I keep reading about it? No, I, I think there are there are opportunities, and I, I think the coaching is there. And, you know, we've seen it with Colby Lewis. 
Okay, Miles Michaelis, who's having a great year after a couple of seasons ruined by injury. Yeah, you know, that they'll go over to Japan and uh, work on what, it, what prevented them from taking the next step in Major League Baseball. And if a player is committed, uh, you know, Merrill, Merrill Kelly is another player who's pitched fairly well coming out of Korea. You know, we saw Eric Thames come back after a couple big seasons. In a lot of cases, I think they go over there, and some of the flaws that held them back, uh, they've worked on that aspect of their game. They've improved it, and when they make the transition back to Major League Baseball, they're not the same pitcher that we saw when they left for Japan. And, hey, good for them. You know what I mean? They've gotten an opportunity. They've taken advantage of it and eventually uh, returned home. So I, I salute them. I say, I say good for them because for all of the challenges the Japanese players face outside of the game coming to North America, North American players have those same challenges heading to Japan. Culture, language, the whole. So it, it's, it's, it's a difficult decision, but I think you get to the point in your career where I think it's a smart decision. Of course, people going to Japan from Major League Baseball have the advantage of not needing a translator. They can just speak English, slower and louder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how that kind of thing always works. Uh, you're listening to Baseball yeah. HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Tim McLeod from Prospect 361. And Tim, at the Prospect 361 website, you post a waiver wire watch for the coming weekend. A lot of W's there. Before we yes. get to some players uh, on your latest watch, how do you select the players that you want to bring to our attention? I started doing a waiver wire article probably, uh, it's got to be at least eight or nine years ago. And at the time I was working for Rob Blackstein at, at Roto Rob. And one of the things that I, that I found with waiver wires, a lot of them tended to be fairly generic. Okay, you see the same thing every week, and they were geared to 10 and 12 team leagues, but there wasn't much out there that dealt a little bit deeper into 15 and 20 team leagues and dynasty type leagues. So I have a tendency when I'm looking at my waiver wire to gear it a little deeper than most. And I've I've just found that people people enjoy some of the the options that I present, especially related to deeper formats, because I think more people now are playing. 15, 20, 30 team leagues. So again, I just tried to, I tried to address something at the time that I, I saw there being a need and I've pretty well carried that forward to today. And I have a tendency to look a little bit deeper, I believe than the average waiver wear. And Hey, if you can get some benefit from that, uh, Hey, head on over, give it a spy. In your last one, I noticed you liked a couple of pictures that my first reaction was, these guys are on horrible teams. Why would I be interested in Pittsburgh starter Roanzi Contreras or Washington starter Eric Fetty? Uh, when you look at Contreras, okay, yeah, the guy's got a good arm. There's no doubt about it. In 15 team leagues, he should be rostered and active. And I, I think the potential to be a top 30, 40 starter is there. Uh, in deeper leagues, pitching pitching's tough. Uh, Eric Fetty, uh, you asked me how come, and I'm going to say I was drinking that day after the results of his last game. You know, when I looked at Fetty last week, his history is shaky at best. But this year, up up until that last game, he 
seven of the nine outings he tossed, he'd allowed two earned runs or fewer. He was pitching really, really good. And then, of course, I recommended him, and he imploded this week. Uh, when I look at a player like that, if they're on a roll and they're pitching well, uh, I think you have to alert the public to it. You pointed out uh, Cubs outfielder Christopher Morell. Why the Morell imperative? It's Chicago. Uh, the kid's, kid's got some talent. He's got some skills. And right now there's opportunity uh, in Chicago. And that's that's something that I'm always looking at when I put together my waiver wire article. You know, you can have all the skills in the world, but if there's no opportunity, it ain't going to matter. If you've got an opportunity to excel and get every day at bats or innings pitched, uh, I think that's something that has to be weighed into your calculations for the article for any recommendations for players. Yeah. Hey, if you, you look at uh, uh, a good example of Abraham Toro who's now with Seattle. Well, he was, he was with Houston for years and he was a nice player. And I, I think the skills were very good, but it's pretty tough to find regular bats when Alec Bregman is at third base, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Opportunity is a big part of why anybody wants to look at a player in the first place. Uh, you also mentioned Colorado outfielder Jonathan Daza, who wasn't rostered in the leagues you monitor, and you issued him a recommendation just because of Colorado, or was there opportunity there as well? Up until the past couple of days, he's been playing on a fairly regular basis. And if you take a look at the numbers, the kid's hitting, uh, you know, He's got a 356 batting average, okay, and 104 at bats. There's no, there's no power there. 13 RBIs, you know, scored 16 runs, and basically heading into the end of May, he was playing every day. He didn't play yesterday, but I, I think what you've got in deeper leagues, uh, especially uh, if you're looking at uh, an NL only, there's an opportunity there. You know, he's what and. Uh, uh, up until yesterday, uh, we're looking at seven hits in his prior 18 at-bats with five RBIs. So, again, he's getting regular playing time, not full-time yet, but he's producing. So, again, take advantage of it uh, while the going's good. And at the risk of scooping yourself, who are you looking at for this weekend's waiver wire? Uh, well, after, after watching... Danny Jimenez implode for the past three days. Yeah, I think he's allowed eight earned runs in his past three outings. One player that intrigues me is A.J. Puck. You start looking at Oakland. If Oakland's going to make a change in the closer situation, A.J. Puck could find himself uh, working his way into saves, I think, uh, I think fairly soon. Uh, another player, and we can we can focus a bit more on uh, well, I'll, sk- I'll skip him for now, but uh, Luis Garcia in Washington, as far as a bat is concerned, is definitely a player I'm going to be looking at. The kids kids hit very, very well uh, down on the farm for Washington. Uh, the skills are there, and is LCD's Escobar the answer? I, I think the Nats have to give some of these young kids an opportunity, and I think with uh, Escobar out right now, I think he might not be coming back to a full-time job. So uh, Luis Garcia in the middle infield for the Washington Nationals is another player I'm looking at. I think Alcides Escobar is the answer, but only if the question is, who's a shortstop that shouldn't be playing on a team that's trying to develop for the future? There we go. Exactly.
You're also pretty well known in the industry, Tim, as a guy who keeps an eye on prospects, and not only in Japan or Korea, but here in North America as well. And for 2022, I have to say it looks like a three-way race for the Fantasy Rookie of the Year, Jeremy Pena, Julio Rodriguez, and Bobby Witt. Who do you like better amongst these three in the near term and for the longer run? Oh, man, that's like asking if you, when you look at Rodriguez and you look at Witt, that's like asking you want a 20-carat diamond or a 25. Yeah, they're they're both winners. Uh, if I had to choose between the two right now, I I got to go with Julio Rodriguez. I, I think at some point in time he puts together a thirty-plus home run season with with great uh, batting average, OBP numbers, and will steal you ten to twelve bases. Bobby Witt, uh, I I don't see the power developing to the same level as Rodriguez, but the stolen bases will be a bit higher. I I, I think it's a win. I think it's a win-win. I give the slight edge to Julio Rodriguez, uh, but again, if you've got either one of those two players, I think you're going to be very very happy for a long long time. Why only twelve stolen bases for Rodriguez? He's got that many now in a third of a season, not even. I think as he fills out and 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 grows i i don't think we will see him running at the pace that he currently currently is i how about what's a good what's a good example uh juan soto okay i do the mariners want julio rodriguez running 30 times a year i don't think they do Uh, i think they want that bat in the lineup and I just think as he fills out, the the speed diminishes, and I, I hate to compare anybody to Mike Trout, but in answering your question, that might be that might be a fair a fair answer. And what about Pena? You got you got to love those skills, and even if at some point in time the bat slumps a little bit, the glove's going to keep him in the lineup because defensively he is excellent. Uh, I have him uh, a notch below Rodriguez and Bobby Witt. But I think you've got a very, very good player there, and I, I think as he as he grows and his skills improve, and I think they will. I think you've got the potential for a Gold Glove shortstop with twenty twenty potential, and that's that's not that's not too shabby. Maybe that's a, that speaks as to how highly I look at Julio Rodriguez and Bobby Witt. What do you expect from Adley Rutschman in Baltimore? More than what we've seen thus far, but catchers are a different breed. Okay, by far the most challenging position on a team. Not only, not only are they responsible for what we consider to be important, which is a hitting component of the game. Yeah, they got a they got a rotation to work with as well. And uh, I like Rushman. I think he's got potential. The potential to be a top three catcher. Are we going to see it this year? No, definitely. I don't think so. I think there will be some growing pains. But I I do believe come the end of the year, there will be 10 to 12 homers, 40 RBIs, and a decent batting average. How in are you on Alec Thomas, the outfielder in Arizona? I'm totally in. I, I'm liking what I'm seeing. And again, there's opportunity in Arizona. You know, it, hey, he's going to play every day. And I would say I am probably more in on Alec Thomas than I am on Gorman in St. Louis. In Chicago, they have a guy who fits into two of your bailiwicks, Asaya Suzuki, a rookie, and a, a Japanese player. And, of course, he's a rookie in the sense that he's new to Major League Baseball, but he's certainly not a rookie as far as pro baseball is concerned. 
Yeah, uh, we've seen uh, we've seen a, a tale of a tale of two Suzukis this year. He started off very very hot, uh, then went cold. Now he's now he's dealing with a finger injury. Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think he would consistently be as good as what we saw in the first three weeks of the season. Or as bad as per se what we have seen in the last three weeks, somewhere in between. And I think long term, you have 25, 25 to 30 home run potential with 10 to 12 stolen bases. I think he's going to be a very good player. And all I can say right now to people that have him rostered, exercise some patience. How much do you believe that Mackenzie Gore is finally here for real? I'm a believer. I, I think the changes that he made and worked on last year have come to fruition. And he, he has been as consistent, basically, as consistent could be since getting the call. The only concern I have with Mackenzie Gore, and we already saw it, uh, we already saw it once where they were talking about skipping a start. Uh, with all the trials and tribulations Gore has had over the couple, past couple seasons, I think he's going to be good uh, this year. But again, I think you have to temper your expectations as far as workload is concerned. Uh, I'd be very shocked to see anything over about 130 innings this year. So again, he's pitching well. I think it's going to continue. But don't be planning on much more than 130 or so innings. I think Padres should be very careful with his workload. Uh, this year. There's been a bit of controversy about how Kansas City is managing their roster to the extent that uh, they have Carlos Santana, whose OPS I think is down around 400, uh, still playing first base. They've got other players who are really struggling. And in the minor leagues, they have a couple of guys, Pasquantino and Prado, both of whom are hitting the hell out of the ball, especially Pasquantino. And yet the general manager seems to be saying, we're not going to bring them up because we're afraid that they're going to be too successful or something. I, I didn't quite get it, but what do you think of that story? It's time the Kansas City said, okay, you know, Carlos Santana, you've had a great career, but it's not getting done. And they, they, they should be bringing Pasquantino up now. And I think at some point in time in the next two to three weeks, that's in fact going to happen. And I think he's a player that we should all be, all be monitoring. Uh, and if you want to want to buy in, buy in cheap and you can, uh, he's one player that definitely should be added in. I'll go as shallow as 12 team leagues. Wow. Anybody else uh, on the cusp of coming up from the minor leagues and having an, a, an impact here in the big leagues? Yeah, well, Grayson Rodriguez, okay. He left his, his start yesterday, uh, I think after five and a third with some lat discomfort. But, <coughs> excuse me, Grayson Rodriguez has nothing left to prove at AAA. I actually thought he'd be getting called up this week, and it didn't happen. Grayson Rodriguez could be an impact player. I, I think once you see, once we see Riley Green complete his rehab, I don't think he's going to spend very long down on the farm. The Tigers' offense, anemic, is being too kind. It's the last time I looked, they had the lowest run scored by a wide margin over any team in baseball. So I think Riley Green's going to get an opportunity, and I, I like the skills. Uh, you're looking at uh, looking at pitching. Uh, Caleb uh, Killian of the Cubs is leading internationally with 2.06 ERA. I, I think he's going to get an opportunity fairly soon. And if you want to go real deep into Baltimore, Gunnar Henderson is having a great year. 
I I don't know about the uh, the overall impact this year, but he's definitely along with Yuri Perez. There's two players that we should be monitoring on a regular basis because we might see them at some point in time down the stretch. Uh, Perez, I would love to see because the kid's 19 years old at Double A. He's pitching very, very well. And it's been a long time since we've seen a teenager pitching in the big leagues, hasn't it? It has. Uh, by the way, Caleb Killian coming up as the subject of Alex Becky's frequent flyers comment in just a minute. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Tim McLeod from Prospect 361. And Tim, I always like to wrap up these discussion by looking at Boons and Baines. These are guys who are going to be helpful or not helpful. Uh, for the rest of the season, let's start with your boons, uh, players who look like good value in the American League. Who's a batter you think could be a boon for his teams? I'm going to go with Spencer Torkelson. What we have seen is not who we are going to see. And I think the past few games, it looks like he's breaking out of his season-long swoon. Kids just got too much talent, I believe, uh, to not get better and a lot better. So if you know if somebody in a redraft league has given up on Torkelson, I think it might be time to get back on that bandwagon. In the National League, Tim, who's a batter who could be a boon? Keston Hura is playing fairly well lately. He's still striking out a bit too much, but he worked on his mechanics down on the farm. And Rowdy Tellez, we've seen sort of feast and famine, and he's he's been sitting a little bit lately on the platoon split. So Keston Hura intrigues me. Uh, over the uh, second half. Over to the mound, how about an American League pitcher who could be a boon? I love Christian Javier. I really do. Uh, I liked him last year when he was working in a middle middle relief capacity. And so far as a starter, he's been very, very good. I uh, The thing I like about Javier is even, even if he decides to give Odorizzi a rotation spot back, Javier can shift into a middle relief. And with Houston's offense, he can get your pile of wins and be good across the board, but I, I don't think Houston is going to put him back into that role. I think he's here as a starter, and I think he's going to be very good. And in the National League, who could be a boon pitcher? Tyler Maley can't be that bad, can he? You look at the underlying stats, and they don't look that bad. So, yeah, if I was looking at trying to trade on a on a in a low, uh, you know, and buy low on somebody, I think I'd give T- Tyler Maley a look. Certainly he's going to get his starts as long as he's healthy. There's not much uh, uh, other options in Cincinnati. Uh, let's go over to the Baines, Tim. These are guys who are going to provide disappointing value, shall we say, for the balance of the season. Again, starting in the American League, who's a batter who could be a Bane? Byron Buxton, what more can you say? When he's on the field, he's all world. How much is he going to be on the field? I, I think uh, they created the day-to-day status for Byron Buxton and it's not uh this week next week this year it's a career it should be stamped on as a career thing right about now uh, he's just going to be very very frustrating I think to roster on a regular basis sell high yeah I would I I definitely would uh like I said you know they're already they're already giving him they're already giving him rest days we're into June aren't we and he's managed to hit the IL, I believe it. He's just a very frustrating person to own. I, I don't think he's... I, the odds of him staying healthy for the remainder of the season, uh, I think, are, are very, very low. Oh, but the upside, if he does, right? Uh, that's the that's the, the the shiny golden object that everybody looks at when they see Byron Buxton's name on a free agent list or a trade offer list. Uh, in the National League, who could be a batter bane? 
I'm going to go way out on a limb here and, and mention a player that has 10 homers, 32 RBIs, and a 303 batting average. And it's one Bryce Harper. I am very, very concerned. You know, he's 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 dealing with a, a tear in his UCL, okay, and playing through it. And he was scratched last night due to right forearm soreness. Okay, he's played incredibly well considering the injury situation. But I just have some serious concerns about Bryce Harper missing time in the second half of the season. So if I had Harper right now, I'd probably look at moving him. As regular listeners of Baseball HQ Radio know, I've had elbow problems myself, and the uh, that UCL has been a, was a problem for me. And one of the things that was an offshoot of it was forearm soreness. I can vouch for that, and I don't swing a bat in a major league uniform, so I can't imagine how tough that must be for Bryce Harper to deal with. And uh, it also seems to me, I would almost say likelier than not, then at some point he's going to have to throw in the towel because the the if there's a tear in the UCL and I'm not quite exactly sure what the diagnosis was, but if it's torn even a little bit, your body can't repair it on its own is the problem. And, uh, well, it can eventually, but not certainly while you're playing baseball because you're using it too much. You'd have to go into a splint or a sling or something like that and leave it. And I just don't see Bryce Harper as a guy who can be fully trusted to deliver for the whole rest of the season. I'm with you exactly on that point. Yet in the fact that the Phillies are struggling and they they lost uh, Jean Sakur for, what, 10 to 12 weeks now with a broken finger. Right. At some point in time, like if hey, he could have that surgery before the season's over. If they decide that there's no future for the team in this year's context, then I think that's exactly right. Back over to the mound we go. Who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane? How can Martin Perez be as good as he is? I can't figure that one out. I would definitely be trying to move Martin Perez. And the other pitcher that that concerns me, maybe a little bit more long-term, is Nestor Cortez in New York. Like, he's getting by on guile deception and a, 90, and a, and a great cutter, but that, that 90 mile an hour fastball, I think at some point in time, is going to get hit. So I have concerns about those two. Martin Perez has just been ridiculous this last month. That's for sure. It was who saw this coming. And you know, even after he started doing it, I mean, in the leagues I play and nobody picked him up because it was, oh, you know, he had a good start. Big deal. We've seen it before. Oh, look at that. Two in a row. I still don't buy it. And then by the time people were buying in on it, he had what, six, six starts and six wins or five, five in six or something like that. It was a, it's been a really good month, but you got to be careful about really good months. Well, yeah, his last four starts against Boston, Houston, Oakland, and Tampa Bay, he's allowed two earned runs. And there's some pretty good offenses in there when you talk Houston and Boston. You know, that's, he's, he's just been absolutely lights out. And I, I, I'm, I'm, one of the, I'm one of those guys that's saying, how is he doing it? Okay, And having trouble believing it'll continue. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, Houston and Boston are, when I'm looking at which pitchers to stream in a week, they're kind of right at the top of my list of and the, them and the Angels. These are teams I don't want my streaming level pitchers to be anywhere near. I even sat, much to my regret, I, I'm a big Logan Gilbert fan, but I sat Logan Gilbert against Houston this week. You have to, though, don't you? Uh, yeah, and he tossed a shutout. 
<laughs> Murphy and his laws strike again. <laughs> they named that law after Ray Murphy, by the way. Finally, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll clarify that in Arizona this fall. Okay. Yeah, well, d- double check. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, finally, Tim, how about a pitcher in the National League who could be a bane? I'm concerned about Walker Bueller, and and I I know you look at the numbers six and one with a three twenty two ERA, but. The fastball isn't getting it done. It's not generating swing and misses. The velocity's down a little bit. Uh, I'm I'm concerned a little bit about Walker Bueller, and I I think as we move forward into the second half, uh, Julio Urias sort of falls into that category for me as well. I think the Dodgers are going to be very careful with both those pitchers because they're looking at the big prize. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see a fairly decent cut in workload as we head into September, pending, of course, where the Dodgers are in the standing. But Walker Bueller's fastball is just not getting it done this year. Tim McLeod's Boone, Spencer Torkelson of Detroit, Keston Hura of Milwaukee, Christian Javier of Houston, Tyler Molly of Cincinnati, his Baines, Byron Buxton of Minnesota, Bryce Harper of Philadelphia, Martin Perez of Texas, and Nestor Cortez of the Yankees, and Walker Bueller of the Dodgers. Tim, uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Tim McLeod. Okay, you can find me at Prospect 361, where we do two podcasts a week, uh, Friday and a Sunday, and I do a waiver wire and closer report uh, on the site. Uh, updated uh, the closer report uh, on an as-need uh, as basis. I can also be found at Patton & Company, where I'm a regular contributor, and at the Facebook page, Baseball365. Uh, uh, on Twitter, you can find me at RunTMC, and uh, I spend most of my time on Facebook, so friend me friend me up, and I'll, I'll be hanging out. Well, Tim, this has been as interesting as I had hoped, as entertaining as I had hoped, as informative as I had hoped. It's just been a terrific talk. I really appreciate you taking the time. Have a great day. I know your basement's flooded up there in Fort Francis, Ontario, so go get your beer stein and uh, either use it to empty out your basement or use it to fill up yourself. Well, yeah, I got, uh, I'll have the, uh, the beer out along with the hip waders and water wings. Okay. We're at that stage of the program, but I want to thank you very much for having me on again, uh, again this year, uh, Patrick. It's, uh, always a pleasure spending time with my friends from baseball HQ and looking forward to once again, crossing paths in Arizona this coming fall. Thanks for everything. Appreciate it. Tim McLeod joins us from Patton and Company, prospect361.com and the P361 podcast. Quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the Take me out with the crowd. HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Cubs right-handed starter Caleb Killian is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. 
Happy belated birthday to Chicago Cubs starting pitcher Caleb Killian. Born on June 2nd, 1997, now 25-year-old Chicago Cubs right-hander Caleb Killian, who was once an integral part of the Chris Bryant trade, may soon be an impact starter on the north side. He's somebody that our scouts identified and really liked in that trade last year. He's having a great season. I'm sure we'll see him sooner rather than later, according to Cubs manager David Ross in a May 27, 2022 article appearing on The Athletic. Indeed, Killian is having a great season, pitching his way to a 2.06 ERA with 41 strikeouts in 39 innings through nine AAA starts. Worth noting, Tim Stebbins of Channel 5 WMAQ Chicago also predicted on May 19, 2022, that Killian could arrive sooner rather than later. Sound familiar? Noting that Jed Hoyer's Killian's debut response of, he's certainly putting himself in a position for that, yeah, as a possible positive indicator. Plus, in the June 1st, 2022 Des Moines Register article, Cubs Farm Director Jared Banner was quoted as saying that despite the recent promotion of Matt Swarmer, Killian is still close to making his debut. I will say that by performing so well, he's put himself in the conversations, Banner continued, but time will ultimately tell when the right time is. So he's close, he's in conversations, but the timeline, or the right time, is still a little murky. That's why now 25-year-old Chicago Cubs pitching prospect Caleb Killian, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available at the right time in your league. Nevertheless, the recent quotes from David Ross, Jed Hoyer, and Jared Banner presented herein appear to be buy signs in all fantasy markets. Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com, Killian offers some deception with an advanced feel for changing speeds and solid fastball command, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst, page 90. A closer look shows that Killian's Minor League Career Command Ratio of 5.7 strikeouts to walks far exceeds and almost doubles our 3 strikeouts to walks benchmark used by BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. Everything we've seen with Caleb, it just looks like real big league stuff, again quoting David Ross on The Athletic. Stuff's trending up, the velocity's moving up, and there's just a lot of good things to like about him, Ross continued. Reason enough, perhaps, if the time is right, to consider adding now 25-year-old Chicago Cubs pitching prospect Caleb Killian as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And by the way, since Alex recorded that frequent flyer, Chicago media are reporting that Killian was the team's top option to start one of the doubleheader games on Saturday against the Cardinals, with a decision expected to be announced Friday. But as of Friday afternoon at about 4.30 Eastern time, the Cubs had not made any announcement. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about the five archetypes of trading. Earlier in this pod, Tim McLeod and I talked about trading, and I mentioned the importance of understanding the needs of your potential partner. It's a truism that if you want to make a trade, you have to get someone to agree to your offer. And let's say right from the jump that nobody can tell you how you can be reliably successful in dealing with the other owners in your league. There are just too many variables. 
But I would like to talk about how you can lay the foundations for future trading opportunities by understanding the trading archetypes of your fellow owners. You are going to encounter all kinds of owners in your leagues, as many and varied as people can be. But in the interest of saving time, I've boiled down that infinite number to five main archetypes. I've given the archetypes the names of people from my pop culture past. If you want, see if you can figure out the origins or sources of these names. It'll help if you're old. Monty Hall is the owner for whom the auction was just a prelude. He deals a lot, not always wisely, and prefers big deals with lots of prominent players. Greg Norman is the guy who will make a trade only when he wins it outright. He's the one who ends up paying 65 cents worth of marginal players who happen to have had a hot week to get a dollar's worth of players who had a cold week. In keeper leagues, he's often extremely well-informed about the best prospects and looking to fool their managers into giving them away. Warren Buffett is a rational actor who will listen carefully to every offer he gets and make deals based on logical evaluation of their effects. A Warren Buffett is the best owner to deal with because he thinks about what's being offered and makes decisions quickly, including counteroffers. Be careful not to insult him with a dumb offer, but do be willing to make a smart offer that most owners would think is dumb. Shirley Ellis will make a deal, but only if the names, and or draft day salaries or slots, are close to equal. Shirley Ellis doesn't really follow the idea of categories or points. She wouldn't trade you a name closer for a middle-rank power guy, even if she had a 50-save lead and was five homers short of eight points. No way. If she gives you a name, she wants an equivalent name back. Otherwise, no sale. And finally, Mr. Hurd. Poor Mr. Hurd will never initiate an offer. He'll listen politely to your offer, but then demur on making a decision and basically just wait for you to go away. Mr. Hurd is paranoid about making a deal because if it doesn't work out well for him, even if it truly was a good idea, he's worried he'll be ridiculed by the rest of the league. Most fantasy managers are Mr. Hurd's. You might have some suspicions about which owners in your league fit which trading archetype. It'll help in your future to get a good handle on who is what. It makes it easier to make deals. You can get an early feel by throwing out lots of offers. Include a top or good player coming to you and a lesser player going out. The offer should be fairly one-sided in your favor, but not ridiculous. Offer a very sketchy justification, maybe even one that isn't quite accurate. You might even mention that the players are about the same in value to see how or if your potential partner understands the value of players during the season. Depending on your league's rules, be sure you're not committing yourself to anything you can't live with. Some leagues use websites that allow the recipient to finalize an offered trade simply by clicking on I agree. Broadly speaking, all of these offers will be declined. You should expect that, but how they're declined will help you identify which trading archetype you're dealing with. Monty Hall will counter by suggesting a 4-for-4 four four deal, possibly including your lawnmower. Greg Norman will counter with a one-sided offer favoring him, offering a fast-starting second-rate player or a declining high-profile player for one of your stars who is off to a slow start. Warren Buffett will offer a reasonably detailed reply that might be terse to the point of being rude. Trading a closer makes no sense. I'm within five saves of five points in the category. If he thinks you don't get it, he'll just say, no thanks, and that's bad news for you. 
he thinks you're one of the other archetypes. If he counteroffers, be flattered and assess the counteroffer carefully. It might make a lot of sense, even if it doesn't look like it on the surface. Surely Ellis will complain about the relative values of the players involved, not their actual in-season values, nor their specific values based on the categories. It'll be the name. You want a name? Give a name. That's the deal. Mr. Hurd, of course, won't reply at all. Or if he does, it'll be something like, I'll look at it, or something like that. And then, like I said, he'll wait till you go away. You should also figure out what kind of trader you are and what kind of trader your league mates perceive you to be. The best, of course, is a Warren Buffett, although you often have to learn to keep your detailed explanations to yourself when you're dealing with most of the other archetypes. Being a Greg Norman will help you succeed in the short run, but in the long run, no other managers in the league will deal with you, except for Warren Buffett, but you can't Greg Norman him. Of course, you don't want to be any of the others. If you're a Monty Hall, a Shirley Ellis, or a Mr. Hurd, you just need to up your trading game. Next week, I'll get into more details about how these archetypes interact. Consider yourself warned. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 3rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Tim McLeod from Patton & Company, Prospect361.com, and the P361 Podcast. Tim is one of the genuinely good guys in this game and one of the smartest and most capable fantasy analysts and players you're ever going to come across. Also, a good Canadian lives up there in Fort Francis, Ontario. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your podgetter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports and all the usual great stuff, National League and American League news, our Baseball HQ commentaries, Scott Pianowski on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.